Well, hey there, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Today, I have a very exciting episode with Dr. Walter Hanengraf, somebody who basically I've been waiting for a long time to reach out to and connect with. I've been trying to get myself ready for this one, and it did not disappoint. Uh, I'm going to introduce him in a second, but for now, I'm going to get you a couple of updates on what's going on in this world, and then we'll get to the introduction and then to the episode. So first of all, as always, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. The website is almost ready. I know I've been saying that for a very long time. I have not done this before, and I assure you, uh, when I say it's going to be ready in two months, I really think it is. But <laughs> hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, we will have this sucker out and ready in the next couple of months. I am very much looking forward to it. The website is awesome, and uh, the folks doing it have been amazing. Uh, Brandon Alcorn at Alcorn Agency, thank you very much. Uh, so check out The Sacred Speaks, check out the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences Boutique Integrative Clinic that my wife and I started years ago, and uh, it's, we're, we're up to some cool things. So that's, that's very interesting to figure out kind of healing in this community, certainly down in Houston. Also, another shout out to Young Center in Houston. Check it out, younghouston.org. Lots of great classes going on there, both in person and at a distance. If you're looking for something cool to do, some cool class to enrich your um, your, your state of experience in, in this life, then, uh, then check out the Young Center. It's a cool place to do some small classes, uh, workshops, uh, four-week classes. Music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Hang out till the end of the episode, and you will hear a song from Modern Nations called Clouds, theme song of the podcast. Okay. Oh, yeah, another, just a, a note. Somebody online uh, I, I was just interacting with posted on the comments section about all these episodes on psychedelics and, and having access to psychedelics. And everybody, of course, has different um, access in different states and um, uh, you know, also just who you know. And, and so I, I want to put this out there and say, first of all, this is not ever an endorsement of Using any of these substances, these are risky substances. So anytime you do so, do so with uh, that awareness and hopefully with uh, some established and respected guides that you can not only have the experience with, but integrate with. That's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. But I do want to also note that these kinds of processes are not restricted to only psychedelics. Uh, psychedelics and alternate states of consciousness f via drugs was one mode of transi transitioning your, your state of consciousness. I just participated in uh, a holotropic breathwork session, and it was totally radical. So uh, I, I think there are all kinds of ways, and, and that's, that's really what this text is looking at, is a spiritual path, a real spiritual path that doesn't point toward a particular ideology, but points toward an experiential nature of kind of creating an opportunity for your... Um, the nature of your nature to express itself, which is, is kind of interesting. Okay, so now to Voucher. I want to, this book is amazing. It's expensive. He notes it. It's actually gone down in price since I bought it, um, but it's coming out in paperback. I highly recommend it. I think it's a fantastic read. I mean, I want the hardback. Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination, Altered States of Knowledge in Late Antiquity, Check that out. And now to Walter. Walter Hanengraf is professor of history of hermetic philosophy and related currents at the University of Amsterdam, the Netherlands, a member of the Royal Dutch Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as past president and now honorary member of the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. Alongside numerous articles, he is the author of New Age Religion and Western Culture, 
Esotericism in the Mirror of Secular Thought from 19, uh, 1996. Lodovico, uh, oh yeah, that's uh, the Hermetic Writings and Related Documents. Oh yeah, he goes on. He tells me not to read all this stuff, but he's got a lot of cool stuff. Just, just to give you a peek. Esotericism in the Academy, Rejected Knowledge in the Western Culture. Uh, three Perspectives on uh, Swedenborg. Uh, Odinger, Kant, Three Perspectives on the Secrets of Heaven. Holy moly. Um, a Guide for the Perplexed. He's co-edited eight collective volumes, including the 1,200-page Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism. Again and again, I, I, with a shared friend of ours. Uh, this is, thank you, Jeff, by the way, how I got connected with Alter. Uh, Jeff Kripal, um, Hidden Intercourse, Eros and Sexuality in the History of Western Esotericism with Jeff Kripal. His most recent monograph, Hermetic Spirituality, of course, book today. His current projects are focused on the history of consciousness in German idealism and romanticism and the role of the imagination in Western culture. Holy moly! He's a total badass uh, and just a real uh, treat to talk to. So thank you, Walter, for your time and certainly for this book. As you all will see, I did a bit of uh, uh, kind of freaking out. I got, I got really excited about this stuff. So... And I am really excited about this stuff. So thanks, Walter, and thank you for listening. Uh, please share, like, do all the things. Uh, check out the Instagram. More to come soon. I'm really stoked about this work that's happening. A lot of stuff, a lot of stuff bubbling up here. So hang in there and keep watching and keep tuning in. And, uh, and for now, we'll leave it there. Dr. Walter Honigroff, am I saying that correctly? Uh, yeah, you say it correctly. Honigroff, yes. Now Honigroff. I get, yeah, I get all kinds of strange pronunciations, but uh, Honigroff is quite good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, so welcome. As I was saying earlier, I'm really moved by this text, and it happens to, to follow uh, an important trend and path that I'm on. And it directed me into a lot of this hermetic spirituality. I, mean, I, I I'm definitely the consumer who reads the footnotes and the bibliography, and I order books. So uh, Amazon is unfortunately <laughs> very supported by my uh, my my addiction to these books. And your yeah. book was was quite unique in that way. That I think I ordered about ten books. Um, and so I, I thank you so much. Let me show it to the audience real quick. This is the book we'll be talking about, uh, Hermetic say, Spirituality and the Historical Imagination. Say that again. Yeah, let me say that uh, I apologize in advance for the price. It's very expensive. It's very uh, expensive. Uh, yeah, you know, academic books get so expensive these days. Uh, all I can say is that um, pretty soon, hopefully next year, there will be a paperback. So it will get better. Good. But for the moment, it's an expensive book. It is, yeah. and and uh, though yeah. I dove in, and I'm I am uh, I'm grateful for the fact that I did. So I, I want to start here, and as we said, we're just going to meander together. And yeah. to confirm, we have what's the timeline that we've got? What what, what what's your? Uh, I'm I I have three hours maximum. Okay, uh, good. I, I think so we'll need we'll need two. Usually, I notice that it's yeah. about two hours. So yeah. thank you for that time. Sure. Sure. So I want to start with the title here, and um, a lot is in a title, and I know you <laughs> probably, the title didn't just come just uh, by insight, but um, the, the three different concepts, 
or four, really, that you're bringing together. What is hermeticism? What is spirituality? Uh, and and you put something interesting, historical imagination as opposed right. to imagination, and right. altered states of knowledge. So right. let's kind of take that apart and, and dig into it a bit. Yeah, sure. So let's start with hermetic spirituality. Yeah, right. Yeah, I... <clears throat> Now, like you said, uh, the title, I thought long and deep about the title because mm -hmm. it should encapsulate what the book is all about. It's true. Um, well, basically, you know, so it's a book about, um, you know, it's for a general audience, just as a kind of introduction. It is a book about texts from the first centuries that were written in the, under the Roman Empire in Egypt. And uh, they are called Hermetic because um, they are attributed to uh, Hermes Trismegistus, who was this kind of a legendary uh, wise man, the kind of an uh, ultimate authority of spiritual wisdom, as he was seen at the time. And so these are texts that are written by people who saw themselves as followers of Hermes. And um, so that's where the term hermetic comes from. Uh, there has been a lot of research uh, over about more than a century, uh, 120 years basically, beginning from the 21st century. These are famous texts and there, there has been a lot of research about them by scholars, but I was not satisfied by the outcomes, uh, by the basic picture of how, yeah, how uh, these texts were depicted. <clears throat> so they're famous, but I think they have been miscategorized as mm -hmm. hermetic uh, philosophy. So usually, uh, yeah, most of the scholarship will talk about hermetic philosophy. And I uh, I want to change the narrative, basically, with this book by saying, no, this is not, uh, these are not philosophical texts in a way that we understand philosophy nowadays. And I would call them, them spiritual. And there are several reasons for this. But um, uh, one reason is that, well, one reason I might you know, explain at a very, you know, crucial example and something that I keep coming back to in the book. Um, there, is an, uh, there is a Greek word that is being used uh, all the time throughout the hermetic literature, which we uh, do not have a good equivalent for in our language. Uh, and the Greek word is nous. Uh, yeah. And it's at, the origin of, it's at the origin of words like noetic. Yeah. Um, so we have this English word, word noetic, kind of knowledge. Um, but the problem is, if you read the hermetic literature, um, then the words nous and noetic and noes is all words based upon the same concept uh, are all over the place. You find them everywhere. They're central, central to the text. And they always get translated as intellect or mind. And the problem, and this is where I begin with in the book, is that uh, when you and I, when most of us uh, nowadays in, in uh, modern culture, when we read about intellects, or minds, then we think that something in the brain that has to do with philosophy, with intellectual, you know, discussions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, but actually, it's a mistranslation. Uh, so these texts are not about that kind of stuff. They are not about uh, philosophical reasoning, about um, rational discourse, and those kind of things. Um, they are about a type of knowing, a type of knowledge, uh, often referred to as gnosis, uh, which is said precisely you have to go beyond reason, beyond rationality. And um, so if you talk about hermetic philosophy, and if you translate those words as intellect or mind, then it all looks very rational and very philosophical according to our 
modern understandings of uh, philosophy. Mm -hmm. And you basically, um, yeah, immediately start misinterpreting what these texts are all about. That is a basic argument that I'm making. So instead of philosophy, I think we're dealing with a kind of spirituality. Now, of course, what does spirituality mean? It yeah. is, of course, also a loaded term. I'm aware of that. But um, so what I'm saying is that this, these are not the texts of a kind of um, armchair philosophers sitting there in Roman Egypt talking about interesting metaphysical questions and so on. That is not what they were doing. They were using philosophy for very practical ends. They mm -hmm. wanted to attain gnosis, higher salvational absolute even knowledge uh, or insight or understanding. And um, <clears throat> they were using, of course, the language that was available to them in that time. Uh, and, you know, I make comparisons sometimes about, let's say, with contemporary, uh, let's say, New Age or religion. Uh, to kind of spiritual movements. I've written a book about the New Age movement a long time ago. <clears throat> and if you have a modern or contemporary practitioners, they may be using, um, you know, modern terminology taken from, from psychology, you know, popular psychology, or maybe quantum mechanics and those kind of things. That doesn't mean that they are psychologists or that they are quantum quantum physicists. They are just using that language to right. talk about spiritual processes. And in a similar kind of way, these people were not philosophers in our understanding of the term. They were spiritual practitioners who were using the language uh, that was available, which was a language of Platonism and other philosophical currents at the time. But so my, my point is here that we have to approach these texts in a very different way from how they have been approached so far. Um, uh, so not as philosophical text, but as the text uh, that give us a glimpse, kind of a window on a uh, very intense experience-oriented practice that was going on in uh, Roman Egypt in the second and the third centuries. And so it's still possible to get an idea of what these people were doing, but it was about experiential phenomena, uh, which ultimately um, yeah, have to be experienced in order to be understood and and that was a point that they kept emphasizing uh, you know in the text if you read them uh, read them correctly um so gnosis is often translated as uh, well usually translated as knowledge right it's a mm -hmm. form of knowledge but um well maybe this is a small detail but i think an important detail um english uh, does a pretty uh, poor job in translating uh, knowledge. I mean, if you, so we have the word knowledge, but if you look at other modern languages like German or French, then you see that there are two different words for knowledge and uh, that you can differentiate in German or French or Italian and so on, but not in English. And the difference is that, um, for instance, in German, you can say um, you have kennen and wissen. In French, you have, uh, have connaître and savoir. These are different uh, understandings of knowledge. So one of them means, uh, let's say, propositional knowledge, like the kind of stuff mm -hmm. that you... you um, so I know things because I've studied these books and I, I've studied physics, so I know physics, right? Uh, th th those kind of things. That's one understanding of knowledge. And the other one is knowledge by uh, direct acquaintance. And I, th I think that's very important. Knowledge by direct, direct, direct acquaintance. And this means... Like, uh, I know that person, like say, uh, so uh, um, I, uh, a very good friend of mine that I've known for many years, 
somebody says, do you know the person? Yes, I really know him. Uh, yeah, because I've been acquainted with him and I know who he is. That is not propositional knowledge. That is direct knowledge by acquaintance. So I know John or I know Mary or whatever. It's not the same thing as, uh, as I know things about Mary or I know things about John. Um, another example I've used sometimes, uh, you, you, you know, uh, let's say, example of the White House in uh, Washington. Yes. Do we know about the White House? Yes. It's the, it's the seat of the President of the United States and so on. That is knowledge. That is propositional knowledge. So you know all kinds of things about the White House. But uh, in order to know the White House, you must have been there. And so, um, so the President of the United States actually knows the White House because he knows it. That's knowledge by direct acquaintance. These are two different understandings. And uh, the gnosis, uh, which is central to the hermetic literature, is direct is knowledge by direct, direct acquaintance. So they so what it actually is all about cannot be put down in words. You cannot formulate it. Uh, a, you, you cannot really transmit it through language. It's the kind of knowledge that you only get if you've actually been there, if you've seen it, if you've experienced it directly, uh, in the same way that you know a person because you have experienced that person. In the same way, this is about knowing things that cannot be transmitted. In, no, that cannot be transmitted at all, but mm -hmm. can only be known yeah, because you have been there. So these people <clears throat> were um, uh, really practitioners, and I try to outline the kind of spiritual practice that was that they were involved in, and which finally should lead to this uh, ultimate experience of direct knowledge, direct seeing the true nature of reality. And a very important part of the story is that. Um, um, so actually that leads me to the subtitle, um, you know, altered state of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, well, of course it's, it plays on the well-known term altered state of consciousness, right? So this is an well-known, you know, altered state of consciousness, which are quite an important topic that I find fascinating. So you have different ways of consciousness. You can modify your consciousness by all kinds of means, by meditation, by, uh, by, uh, by uh, loud music, by uh, sensory deprivation, by psychedelic substances, by all kinds of ways, modifying consciousness. Uh, <clears throat> but I talk about um, altered states of knowledge because I argue that um, um, what you can know, the kind of knowledge that's available to you, uh, depends on um, the state of, of the state of consciousness that you're in. Altered state of knowledge leads to altered states of knowledge. So if I want to do uh, scholarly research, I need a um, sober kind of consciousness. I, uh, I, uh, I must be wide awake, I must have slept well, my consciousness must be sober and uh, you know, in a certain way. And that, yeah, that allows me to do the work that you need, need to do as a scholar. Uh, so that's a certain kind of uh, knowledge. But these people were talking about um, forms of knowledge that required a different kind of consciousness. Uh, and so they had developed techniques for changing, for modifying their state of consciousness. And only in that way did they get access to a kind of knowledge that would not be uh, available to them otherwise or in any other kind of way. And what they're actually saying, and that is rather quite radical, is that um, you know, the human soul, according to them, originally has perfect consciousness. 
So we have perfect knowledge uh, where we came from. We knew exactly how things were. Uh, so, so the things that really are realities that really is. Um, so we had that knowledge, but then uh, they described that our soul gets, um, well, descends into the body. It goes through all the planetary spheres, according to the cosmos as an automatic. So you go down through the spheres. And then what happens is that your, uh, your consciousness gets altered by embodiment. Yeah. And so uh, what they're actually saying, and this is quite radical, is that all of us right now at this very moment, um, our consciousness has been altered. We are actually yeah. living in a state of hallucination right now. And the real non-altered state is the disembodied state. Yes. Uh, our embodied state is a state of hallucination. Yeah. So if we think that um, our normal consciousness in which we are talking with each other right now is the baseline state, and there you can modify it or change it. Then you actually have it to the other, have it to the wrong, have the wrong way, uh, wrong, wrong side of the sticker. So you, so you have it to have it the wrong way. It's actually the other way around. So actually, um, what they were trying to do, they were trying to develop. They were, they had developed techniques for, um, how do you say that? For, um, uh, yeah, for um, reversing this alteration of consciousness and leading the soul back <laughs> to its pure state of direct knowledge, gnosis. That was it. Well, that's what their path was all about. The path of holiness. Yeah, it, Kingsley mentions at the beginning of Catafalque the uh, the archetype of the human, and I, these these two links are so important that we're 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 kind of living out that um, humanness, and we suffer as humans suffer, and yeah. these these practitioners liberating themselves from the um, embodiment and <laughs> I don't want to say entrapment, but the, the the embodiment of what it means to truly be a human um, and what it means to be some kind of sliver of the all expressing itself through a human experience it's yeah. vastly yeah. different than our <laughs> it's vastly different than the shit that i grew up with i'll tell you that man oh, it's <laughs> I mean, the worldview that you find here, the metaphysics is completely different. This yeah. is another, a completely different way of thinking from what we are used to. It's radical. It's radical, but it is completely consistent in its own terms. It's a really an, an alternative way of thinking as, 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 as compared to, let's say, standard materialist uh, scientific oh. worldviews. It's really, really a different metaphysics, <laughs> and it's consistent. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, let's let's pause here for a second because that gets into some territory that um, uh, one thing we didn't do is do an introduction of you. And I think your path has been so interested in looking at the the ways in which this humanness and our pursuit of this propositional knowledge has uh, has maybe in ways continued to. Um, leave more residue that that uh, that that helps us in the process of forgetting our our, our inheritance mm. our natural inheritance of consciousness and so mm. would you would you give us a bit of a bio of who you are and then we'll dive back into this book because i'd like to yeah. i'd like to go into this story that you offered in alexandria with the priestly class that were setting up these procedural yeah. Um, so yeah. if you'll just speak about yourself and then we can dive into that. 
All right. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll just take a little bit of water. Do, of course. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, okay. Um, yeah. So what's, what have I been doing? Um, I, I defended my dissertation in 1995 uh, at the University of Amsterdam, and it was about the New Age movement. And um, this was a time when, uh, so the New Age was very popular at the time. Nowadays, this kind of, everybody knows about this alternative spiritual things and so on. But at that time, there was a lot of concern, a lot of discussion about the New Age. What is it? Uh, because it had become so popular during the 1980s. And so, you know, commercialized also. So, mm -hmm. so there was a lot of discussion about it. And um, what I was doing at the time is that I, I was surprised. I um, didn't know much about New Age. Uh, so I've never been an insider or a practitioner. I, uh, I was just mm. interested. I was walking into these bookshops, New Age bookshops. I saw all this literature. I wanted to know what is this? Where does this come from? What, what should I make of this? And I wanted to understand that. What shocked me at the time, uh, really shocked me, is that when I was looking for scholarly literature, um, Almost all of it was sociological, which was fine, but uh, only a sociological perspective. And nobody seemed to be interested in finding out what these people were actually saying, what they were thinking. Nobody had read the literature. Nobody. Had, so there was all these books on the bookshops, you know, on the bookshelves, in UH bookshops. Nobody had read it. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to know what are these people saying. So that was my dissertation. And so I uh, made a very quite complex analysis of, well, what are these people saying? What, what do they believe about the nature of reality? What do they think about knowledge, about God or angels or mm. the human self and so on and so forth. So, so all the aspects. So I made a kind of systematic analysis of uh, new age worldviews. And then I also uh, wanted to know where does it come from? Uh, so I, uh, in the second part, I, uh, sketched that these ideas actually didn't come from nowhere. They have backgrounds in what uh, we nowadays call Western esotericism. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so basically esoteric movements, uh, traditions that can be traced from antiquity uh, through the present. And I discovered at that time that, um, well, you know, the study of esotericism well, basically, it didn't exist in the academy. There was, uh, there was no, there were no chairs, no programs, or anything uh, for that. So there was this esoteric stuff, but academics just looked the other way. They didn't know what to do with it. They knew everything about Christian theology. They knew everything about science and philosophy, but they didn't know about these uh, these traditions. And if I looked for uh, scholarly literature, I couldn't find it, or very little, very little. And um, so I wanted to do something about it. So basically, the New Age book was my window into this exploration that I've been pursuing ever, ever since. So what is this kind of worldview? What are these people saying? And where does it come from? Uh, those were the two things. And OK, then I got extremely lucky. This was the break of my life, I have to say. I feel deeply privileged uh, because it so happens that um, a new chair was created in 1999 at the University of Amsterdam. Um, it was based upon a donation, a very large donation, uh, which made it possible for the first time to actually, um, you know, study esotericism uh, in an academic context. And I was very lucky to, to uh, I applied, of course, and I got the chair. So, um, so that's where I still am. 
And so we were able to create a whole program together with my colleagues uh, in the study of esotericism. And um, so this was new. It, uh, it was the first program of that kind worldwide. And it still is, I would say, the leading program. So um, mm. so what happened in 1999 was the kind of miracle of my life. I, I, I had... I had to defend my dissertation in 1995. I was a postdoc. I didn't know what kind of future, if any, I would have in the academy. And suddenly there was this opening in my in the city where I was born in Amsterdam itself. There was suddenly this unique chair in Western esotericism. Technically, it's called History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents. So there I have the hermetic in them. <laughs> um, so, okay, so that's what I'm doing. And... Um, so then, uh, would you would you uh, define esotericism for folks that don't know that? Oh yeah, well, well, let me come to that in a moment because Good. it's a very important question. But maybe I can answer that in a different way. So okay, then I got this chair, and then of course I had to define that question: what what is esotericism? How to <laughs> define it? So oh, now first I wanted to, um, you know, the chair was called History of Hermetic Philosophy. I mean the the woman who had made this money available was very much focused on, uh, you know, fascinated by, by, by the hermetic movement. So I wrote a book about a 15th century hermetic philosopher from the Renaissance, Lodovico Lazzarelli, whom nobody knew, mm. and uh, who really changed my whole perspective on the, on the hermetic literature. So that was an, it wasn't a part of the book for me. So I wrote a book about the new age, 20th century, and then a book about the 15th century, you know, hermetic philosopher with Latin on the left side and English translations on the right, completely different kind of book. Um, so these are the two poles, so to speak, esotericism and, uh, and, and hermeticism that I've always been working on. But okay, then, uh, well, we started building up this program. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so we published a large uh, collective volume, the Dictionary of Gnosis and Western Esotericism in 2005, to basically map the whole field and say, this is what it's all about. It's a huge book. It's uh, 120 authors and very large. So we try to map the whole field. Um, by 19, by uh, 2012, I published the second book or a second large book, um, and this is called Esotericism and the Academy, uh, Rejected Knowledge in Western Culture. Mm. That is where I really try to answer the question you just posed. Uh, what is esotericism all about? Because I have been thinking about this for, for many years. Um, the, the, and it's very difficult to define, actually. Now, the, the leading scholar in the field at that moment was Antoine Fèvre, a French scholar at the Sorbonne in, in Paris. Who has become a very good friend of mine. Um, you know, he died last year in in uh, in December, uh, but we've been working together for uh, decades. And he had a very specific definition of esotericism, which made quite a lot of uh, yeah impression on many people. Has has made school, but I developed my doubts about that approach. And so, in this book of 2012, I yeah I basically have a long argument to explain what esotericism is all about in my field and what it comes down to. I mean, it's difficult to, uh, to, to summarize it in a few words, but, uh, but, but I'll do my best. Basically what I'm saying there is that um, there is a whole series of, a series of traditions from antiquity to the present. You have all kinds of forms of Platonism. You have hermetic literature. You have astrology. You have uh, alchemy. You have magical movements. You move into the... 
Renaissance period, early modernity. You have a revival of Hermeticism and Platonism. You get things like uh, Christian theosophy linked to a German genius, uh, Jakob Böhme. Uh, you have uh, the Rosicrucian movement, which, are, which come from the same, uh, same, same traditions. You move to the 18th century. You have people like Emanuel Swedenborg, a kind of visionary who falls or falls in the same tradition. You have mesmeric uh, movements in the 19th century, which are all about trans induction. Um, yeah, they have all kinds of occultist movements in the 19th and the 20th century. You have, uh, have theosophy. You have um, guys like uh, Aleister Crowley and other forms of uh, forms of forms of occultist magic, and so on and so forth. And it leads all up to the our own time. You get the New Age movement, etc. So all this kind of stuff, all these movements, and it's so complex and it is so um, diverse that it's hard to just define it in a few words. Now the conclusion that I drew was that basically what defines esotericism is not so much its content or uh, its, um, yeah, its content, but rather the fact that all of this stuff has been excluded, marginalized and rejected by mainstream society. That is really what defines it. So I, I don't define it directly, but indirectly. And uh, I give a long history, uh, you know, beginning in antiquity and especially in the Renaissance, of, um, which shows that, well, you have mainstream uh, traditions in Western culture like uh, monotheism, of course, uh, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, monotheism. You have, um, you have uh, you know, standard philosophy, rational philosophy, you have rational science and so on and so forth. But these traditions, there's one domain that they have always had problems with. And it is, for lack of a better word, paganism. Pagan traditions from antiquity on. And um, paganism is, of course, a pejorative term. I use it in a, in a neutral term, in a neutral sense. But basically, uh, all this stuff that has been perceived by mainstream traditions as pagan, as irrational, as superstition, and so on and so forth, has been, you know, so to speak, put into a kind of a wastebasket category. Like, uh, this is the stuff that we do not take seriously. This is the stuff that we reject, that we marginalize, that does not fit our, you know, ideas about truth and reality. And so what I've tried to sketch in this the book is a long process of how um, um, as modern science and modern Protestantism as well, you know, develops from the 16th to the 17th, 18th century, and it all culminates in, in the Enlightenment periods, the Age of Reason. Basically, um, you get some kind of, let's say, an Enlightenment worldview that defines its own, its own identity by uh, saying, I am not occult, I'm not um, mystical, I'm mm -hmm. not this and not that. So, um, so the Age of age of uh, reason, the age of the enlightenment, the enlightenment ideology, so to speak, defines itself um, also indirectly against all this stuff that we now call esoteric. Um, so, and in order to, uh, you know, to define their own identity, they had to create this kind of, what I call a kind of a dustbin or a wastebasket category of otherness, of everything that we are not supposed to, to take seriously. And of course, then with the building up of modern academy, etc., um, yeah, all this stuff does get sidelined and does get marginalized. And through the 19th and 20th century, this is the kind of stuff 
that academics don't study anymore. We are not supposed to study it. We're not, not supposed to take it seriously because it's all nonsense, uh, because it's all irrational superstition. And if you're a serious academic, you don't study it. That is basically the idea. And so, and that whole category is what we now refer to as esotericism. So basically the wastebasket uh, category of rejected knowledge. And so that's the subtitle of my book, Rejected Knowledge in Western Culture. So that's esotericism for me. And you can see it in many ways. For instance, let's give one example, uh, alchemy, right? Um, there is this standard narrative, an enlightenment narrative, which says that, um, well, you have chemistry, that's science, and alchemy is superstition, right? Um, and so, of course, chemistry defines itself against alchemy. And, but then uh, this leads to problems because then you look at uh, someone like Isaac Newton, uh, just the most famous example, uh, of course, an, an icon of uh, real science. And then you find out that uh, Newton has written more words about alchemy in his life than about physics and uh, optics. Uh, so, and uh, he has been fascinated in, uh, by, uh, by, by, by alchemy. And historians of science have been embarrassed by that, uh, been embarrassed up to the present almost. Um, you know, they felt that, you know, this must mean that, uh, that Newton uh, must have been crazy or he, he had, uh, yeah. how, how would such a great uh, scientist be involved in alchemy? And so this fits the kind of idea that this is nonsense, that this is uh, rejected knowledge against real science. Well, but if you actually look at the history of uh, alchemy, and this is well known among specialists nowadays, you have people like Lawrence Principe and Bill Newman and many other scholars now who uh, show very clearly that uh, alchemy or what we now see as alchemy is, was a normal part of science in the 60s, in the 17th century. This was not an other field. This was, wasn't rejected. It was part of normal science. So it's a total, perfectly understandable that someone like uh, Isaac Newton was studying it. So what this means, and this is one example, is that we actually have what we have to do is rewrite our narratives, our stories about Western culture and reintegrating this rejected knowledge into the mainstream story. This hasn't been uh, the other, uh, the non-scientific other. It has been part of mainstream culture in many, many ways. And alchemy is one example, but you can give countless other examples. So the study of esotericism, the way I understand it, the way I see it, the way I, I promote it, is not about this kind of uh, niche uh, topic of alternative movements um, that stand on their, on their own, so to speak. Now, what I actually want is something more ambitious. I think that uh, the entire history of Western culture, and the term Western is contested nowadays, but I won't go there, uh, there for the moment. But the whole, um, the whole history of Western culture, where we come from, from antiquity to the present, um, is, has been written in a very one-sided uh, manner by excluding large parts of our common heritage from the picture. So um, what I think needs to be done is reintegrate all this stuff into our normal stories into our narratives. And if you do that, then you find that uh, so many things that we took for granted, uh, yeah, turn out to be very different from how we always thought they were. Mm. For instance, alchemy is a normal part of science that is counterintuitive to many people, but it is true. 
Uh, I mentioned Immanuel Swedenborg is another nice example, 18th century visionary. Most people think in the wake of Immanuel Kant, most people think that Swedenborg was some kind of crazy visionary who had strange ideas and was of course to totally unscientific. If you actually study Swedenborg, then you find out that he was an extremely well-respected scientist who had studied physics, you know, biology, you know, human anatomy and many other scientific fields. And, um, and uh, his worldview is part of his scientific worldview. It's, it doesn't stand against it. It's not anti-scientific. It it's part of the Enlightenment story. And so on and so forth. So you basically start to rethink the whole history of how we are used to looking at uh, mainstream culture. Well, and there's something about the esoteric that... Um we're having this differentiation between what one can know propositionally. Uh, so consensus reality, that which can be measured, um, can be looked at, can be viewed with the senses, and a different kind of knowing that happens on a more, we could say, interior level that's not going to be validated externally by anybody else, but can be shared by people who've had the experience. And yeah. so there does seem to be something about the esoteric that is hidden. And would it be safe to say that as soon as you add more than some amount of people, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen starts, you know, human beings being overly human being, human beings, and, and then the, um, the ability to maintain that kind of singularity of experiential consciousness becomes fragmented just because of the nature of the human being looking outside of oneself always to adapt to an external environment. And so if you pack too many people in there, the capacity to maintain that singular interior experience becomes muddied. And so we're, we're talking about systems of religious thought and experience that had to be protected on some level because the the people outside of that tradition were going to disrupt or um, question or just mess it up, right? Is that is that fair to say that the esoteric is that which is hidden or needed to be hidden? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. It has often it's often said it's one of the standard ideas about the esoteric. I've always pushed back a little bit against this because I, yeah. I know too many I I know too many examples of stuff that we consider. Belonging to esotericism, which wouldn't really fit that picture. Yeah. So, so yeah. I'm not entirely sure. There are also questions like, um, what do we do with mysticism? Is mysticism the same as esotericism then or not? Uh, so uh -huh. you have these categories, and what do they mean? Um, so I have that hasn't been my my main focus, but but you are right that um, that the appeal to this kind of direct experiences that go beyond propositional language, et cetera, is um, central to many forms of esotericism. There's no doubt about that. And I think that goes back already to Plato, to Platonism itself. And so, yeah, so it's is an important it, part of it. Is there some relationship between the amount of people that could be practicing together and the diminishing returns on what can be experienced? Have you seen that? Oh, I just, can you explain that a bit more? How do you? Well, mean I just, I just don't imagine. For example, if we talk about the Hermetic 
spirituality, I don't mm. imagine that you can have a lot of people doing that simultaneously. Ah, right, right. No, I do think that ultimately, well, the experience, yeah, let me think about it. The experience is ultimately an individual experience. Mm -hmm. um, what you find in the hermetic literature is um, small groups, very small yeah. groups. And in the texts, it's usually two people. You have a teacher and you have a pupil. The teacher is usually Hermes, Trismegistus, and the pupil is Tot, usually. And, um, and there, are, there is one particular text that I talk about a lot in my book in which they yeah, together have a kind of an, an direct experience of the ultimate, of the mm -hmm. ultimate light, the undivided light of, of divinity, the noose. And, um, and what's very interesting is that in that experience, their consciousness seems to have merged in a certain way so that they experience the same thing together. And so what one of them sees, the other sees as well. And it's no longer so easy to uh, easy to actually differentiate their consciousness. Yeah. So, so, and that is so, there seems to be this idea that, that ultimately when your consciousness gets, uh, gains access to the ultimate divine light, which is again called the Moose, the ultimate uh, divinity, almost ultimate, then actually there's no differentiation anymore between the mm -hmm. observer and what is being, uh, be, uh, being observed. And also if two people observe the same reality, their consciousness actually turns out to be one of the same consciousness. And, and this has to do with, um, and this is an important part of my argument actually, uh, about yeah dualism and non-duality because yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. the, yeah because the argument is that and this again goes back to this to this narrative this 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 narrative this 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 picture of um, of the soul that descends into the material realm so in you know Pythagorean and, and Platonic terms there is it's it's non-dimensional to begin with so the soul mm. doesn't have dimensions. But then it starts to move downward and it's, it is drawn out, so to speak, and it gains one dimension, like a line. And then it gets, gets deeper into matter and it becomes two and three dimensional. Uh, and finally, by the time it enters the body, it's, enter, it's, it's living in a three dimensional body. Um, but it means that uh, the, the, the original consciousness of the soul is non-dual because there is no duality. There is no, there, there is not even a protracted line. There's just a non-dimensional point. And, um, and so that's the original state of perfect knowledge. It's perfect non-dual consciousness, which also means very radically that there's not even a distinction between the knower and what is known. So, mm -hmm. uh, and there is a very impressive passage at the beginning of the Corpus Hermeticum, the Poimandries, where uh, the pupil Hermes is looking into the eyes of the noose itself of Poimandris, who is the ultimate uh, the divinity, and um, and this is a kind of for me I find this a kind of a dazzling moment because that is the moment when uh, the visionary understands that I am here, I'm looking at the the universal light, but there's no difference between the lights that I am and the light that uh, is being observed. So actually you're looking into your own eyes. There is, so the, the distinction of observer and observed of subject and object collapses. 
and there's only unity. Um, there's only one oneness, so non-duality. And I think this is um, this is fundamental to the to, yeah, to the hermetic literature because ultimate gnosis is is, is non-dual. There's only light. There's nothing else. And um, but as the, as consciousness gets you know embodied into matter, it uh, gets divided into um, into dualistic consciousness yeah. because that is what we need in order to to function and to to survive. We cannot function otherwise in matter. It is it is not dual. It, it is dual and yeah. dualistic. But in order to find a way back again, you finally move from non from duality back to non duality. Well, and anybody who hasn't had this experience, it would seem crazy. Yeah, it is very, very radical. And uh, it is, and what I, yeah, what I have to say, I, you know, there has been so much scholarship about this. And there, I mean, I have great, great yeah, great respect for my predecessors. I mean, uh, you know, people like uh, André-Jean Fischer, the great French scholar who wrote large books about it, dominated the field, and so on. Um, but what you can see is that in only in very more recent scholarship, you see an increasing emphasis on the, yeah, on again, on the experiential aspect, mm -hmm. um, aspect of this. This has been sidelined for a long time, but it's actually central. Well, that is what I've been saying all along, you know, from the beginning. Yeah, because the that's when we get into questions like just to punctuate this for a second. Yeah. Did that really happen? Is that real? Right. Yeah. Th those questions when somebody has an overwhelming experience where they merge with these kinds of realities, right. th then to come back and to have all these faculties of being a human come online, questions such as that's not real. That was just made up. Um, yeah. that's just a function of how my body behaves under trauma, or yeah. I took a substance and it was that substance that affected my neurochemistry, that affected the way I perceive. And, and, and all of a sudden, the nature of our existence, of our human existence, wants, wants to hide that experience. That's what's so interesting about seeing this playing out on a social level, is that that thing that we do on an individual level when we are confronted with these altered states of experience is is naturally to try to say, I, I don't understand that. And so, so much of this practice is not necessarily about how to experience that, but how to come back and how yeah. to be in this experience once one has experienced that experience. So oh, yeah. I, I think something, if we can dive into your book, is that okay if we go uh, back uh, yeah, sure. it? Uh, maybe just one thing about this. It's, uh, I mean, very basically, I think what the Hermetica are really saying is that, uh, you know, the question is, is this real or is this not real, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. The question is, um, no, none of this is real. None, nothing that we experience right now is real in an ultimate sense. Yeah. Uh, none of it is real. The only thing that is absolutely real is the universal light of the news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is the only reality. And uh, it's the only true reality. So the Greek word ta onta, you know, ta onta, the things that really are, that is yes. what you want to know. And it is completely, utterly different from anything that we experience in this world. And so, if, so, the, so their answer would be very straight. They would say, no, we are living in a state of you know, illusion, hallucination, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like a dream. 
Um, but the question is, and you know, uh, before we go on, to, you know, into the book, but um, that's another point I'd like to emphasize because it's crucial uh, to, to the book. Uh, is this um, uh, has has it to do with embodiment, mm-hmm. and it's really mm-hmm. important. Um, so, you know, let me put it this way: this is a major point of my argument, and and I think it's yeah, I think it's important to just point it out a little bit. Is this? Uh, so we have this famous notion that the the cave of Plato, right? Mm-hmm, Everybody knows mm-hmm. the analogy. We are living in, uh, you know, we are. It's like we are living in a cave. We are seeing, fan- we are seeing shadows on the wall, illusions. They are not real. And in order to uh, know reality, we have to leave the cave behind and see the sunlight and the real world outside, right? So that's the famous Platonic cave. And the message is that this is what we should do. We should leave illusion behind. We should leave this material world behind, leave the cave and go into the sunlight of the ultimate, mm. you know, spiritual reality of the, the world of the ideas and so on. So this is a story of escape, uh, a story of escaping from the cave, escaping from matter, escaping from the body and so on and so forth. Now, very interestingly, and I think crucially, that is not what the hermetic authors are saying. They're saying the opposite. Um, they are not Gnostics. So uh, you have the famous Gnostic story, like we are, uh, we are like sparks of light, sparks of spiritual light that are trapped in a material body and in a material world, and we have to uh, escape from the prison of the world uh, back to unity back to the spiritual right that's the gnostic story that's not what the hermetic are saying they're actually saying something very different um and for me this is key and i explain this um i mean the best way to explain this is with reference again to plato um so the story of the cave is one story but there's another side of plato which i think is more important ultimately for the hermetica which you find in the famous dialogue, uh, the symposium, uh, where Socrates is talking with Diotima, and Diotima mm-hmm. is the priestess of the mysteries. She's not a philosopher. She is a uh, visionary who, is, uh, who has direct access, direct gnosis, and she's teaching him what philosophy is all about. And uh, Socrates is very clear in the symposium. She was the one who pointed out what it was all about. So, um, he gets the clue, not from a philosopher, but from a visionary, a female visionary. Uh, and that's important too. Yeah, um, I want to circle back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but what does he say? There is this wonderful uh, short exchange at one point uh, where Diotima tells Socrates, um, you know, Socrates, um, uh, love is not really the desire for beauty, as you think. Now, what this means is that the, you know, according to the Platonic uh, cave analogy, uh, we desire the beauty of the spiritual world. That is what our, uh, that's mm. what we love. That is what we are looking for. That's what what we're wishing and hoping for. And so we do not have that beauty here, but that is what's waiting for us outside the cave, right? And so uh, all our erotic, our eros, all our striving, all, all our, our desires are for the ultimate beauty outside. And so um, it's all about the desire for beauty. And then, so the desire for finding a beauty that you don't find in the body and in the world. 
Now, Diotima says, no, Socrates, um, love is not the desire for beauty. And then Socrates answers, well, what is it then? And she says, it is giving birth in beauty. Mm. And uh, of course, Socrates doesn't have a clue what's, what she means by that. <laughs> so I so said, uh, so, well, I'm sure you're right, he says. And, and she answers, of course I'm right, she says. So you know, that's a little funny, like you Dumbo. I mean, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm going to explain it to you. Now, and this is important. Why is it important? What she is saying um, is that we have this notion of escaping from the cave and finding our way back to ultimate beauty, mm. goodness, and truth, the ultimate spiritual reality. And she says, no, that is not what it's all, all about. It's not about escape. What it's all about is that you have to, to connect with the goodness and the beauty and the truth of the ultimate spiritual world. You have to make a connection, certainly. But once you've made a connection, you have to embody it in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. You have to actually Throw make sure you have to bring it down. Yeah. Uh, it's not about, about escaping. It's actually bringing the goodness, beauty, and truth into the world, embodying mm-hmm. it, giving birth to it. And I find it's, you know, there is something, you know, in terms of gender, it's an interesting story. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there is a stereotypical male perspective, right? So the cowboy who rides out into the sun, uh, sunlight, you know. So uh, so this guy who just leaves the cave and he, and he rides into the, show, in, into the sunlight of the spiritual reality. That's a very masculine perspective, right? And then you have Diotima, a woman who says, who talks actually about giving birth in the cave. Yeah. That's what she says. It's about giving birth in the cave. And that's a female perspective. It's about uh, drawing down, bringing down goodness, beauty, and truth into the world in order to make, to, you know, perfect, to improve and perfect the world. So the interesting, fascinating thing about Hermetica for me is that this is not a story of escape. It's not Gnostic in that sense. This is a story about what what, what they were doing is, uh, they said the whole goal is to, yeah, connect with the source, the ultimate source, and then um, to yeah, connect with the real source of beauty, goodness, and truth, and then uh, making sure that you bring it into the world so that the world mm-hmm. becomes a better place. So you must uh, try to become better people, trying to, um, uh, you know, the, the whole, you know, nature as a whole, the whole world as a whole is not a prison. It's not something bad. It is a beautiful expression of the endless um, uh, fertility of God himself who just mm-hmm. expands himself into this fantastic, dazzling, you know, material world of uh, sounds and colors and smells and everything, things you can touch. All this, um, all of that is good. So uh, the, the essence of the hermetic gods is not some not just some kind of bleak otherworldly reality. No, it is a source of fertility, of abundance, of creativity. Um, And so the goal for the Hermetica is uh, to actually assist the divine source into uh, in uh, creating and in making a beautiful world. And so you see also the, the, the kind of priestly ethics that's behind this. So there's a wonderful passage in the Asclepius and Hermetic text, uh, which says that uh, human beings should think about themselves like uh, they have a kind of priestly duty. We, mm. Our task is to take care of the world, to take care of the world and then to make sure 
that we treat the world the way it, 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 it deserves it to be treated, to make it as beautiful and as great and as fantastic as possible, because that is what the, the divine source wants. You know, it doesn't want us to escape to another world. It wants us to make the world a better place, to quote Michael Jackson, right? Um, so, now, I mean, it sounds a bit corny, maybe to sound, make it to say it like that. But that's really what it's all about. So it's a very world-affirming, positive, embodied perspective. And this is, and this, uh, I think, is essential to understanding. Well, I want to note something really quickly that just occurred to me that, because I was thinking, why? Why is Michael Jackson's quote kind of, yeah. you know, why does, well, yeah. I, I, there, inherently there's a suspiciousness, I think, of a lot of people. Like, we're set up in a reward-based system, so if I want to do good and bring beauty into the world, it's because I'm selfishly trying to get mine. I, I'm, I'm getting something in return. The paradigm that you're talking about is one of expression of the real in this embodied state because yeah. one has been touched by ultimate beauty, yeah. not because there's an attempt to incarnate because I feel like I'm a tarnished being and I've got to bring something beautiful into the world. It's it's such a radically different theological um, set that that certainly psychologically sets us up without a conflict. There's not like the inner knowing of like, ah, you're kind of full of shit and you're just trying to get some reward. There's this real positive connection with something beyond what is comprehensible that's seeking to express itself in an embodied state. And that, to me, that makes total psychological, sociological, philosophical, and theological sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can only agree. Yeah, I can only agree. This is, yeah, you know, and, I mean, it's really, and you know, what you can see is maybe a, one footnote to this, you know, since you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, modern scholars in the 20th century up till late into this, the previous century, have kept putting Gnostic and Christian world denying, you know, uh, yeah. picture on the Hermetica. They've just kept misunderstanding it. There's one example. There's a famous uh, part of the Corpus Hermeticum I, the, the, the first treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum, most important you know, series of texts, uh, the Poimandries. And there you dis it describes how the world came into existence and how human beings came into existence and so on. And there is this moment when out of the, uh, the ultimate universal light of the Godhead, of the noose, there emerges this, this child of God, or uh, who is the, the universal man, the anthropos, the, the great human, hmm. uh, well, the great human, who is an ultimate, extremely beautiful and wonderful and, you know, perfect, this, this, and everybody immediately, I mean, God himself falls in love with him, so to speak. <laughs> so he is, um, so he's this beautiful human. Um, I say human, not man, it's often been called man, but it's actually an androgynous being, Indra but then he yeah. starts behaving. Yeah, okay, it's complicated. The gender aspects are complicated. But then at one point, so the story says that, okay, and then the great human bowed down through the firmament and it looked down on nature. And nature was down below. That's the material world, the world of nature. And she's female and he's male. 
is not gendered male in that situation, mm. in spite of being androgynous as well. It's complicated, but okay, let's think of him as the grand man, okay? And the and nature is female and it's down there. He sees her, he falls in love with her, and she smiles back, back to him and she falls in love with him. And so he comes down and they start making love. So it's an, uh, and out of that comes the whole uh, rest of realization of human beings and so on. So that's the great moment when the spiritual meets and marries the material. And it's a wonderful love story. Now, amazingly, amazingly, if you read a scholarship, um, early, early 20th century, um, Reitzenstein and others, great scholars, they see this story. And what they see is not a love story. What they see is a story of seduction, of entrapment. They um, immediately make matter into something sinister, something mm -hmm. dark. Mm -hmm. It's feminine and it's dark and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it's like a pre-Raphaelite painting. You, 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 you just had these paintings in the 19th century of this, this uh, sinister, demonic feminine, this demonized women who are uh, drawing down men into mm -hmm. matter and into sin and to sexuality and all that, all of that is bad. You know, this is a very misogynic, very, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of, kind of perspective. And it's amazing. If you read the scholarship about this text, almost all scholars fell for that immediately. So they saw this as a story of entrapment, the fall of man into matter, mm. uh, seduction of the pure masculine by the feminine a demonic counterpart that draws him down into sin into matter and all that bisexual uh bisexual attraction and so on and this has this this has been the dominant narrative and it's completely wrong nothing like that is to be found in the text what you find is actually a positive story of the wonderful marriage between spirit and matter but so and, and the reason I highlight is this, we, we have such a strong uh, legacy in our culture of um, anti-body, anti-matter uh, kind of thinking, um, you know, uh, of course, anti-sexuality is called, uh, sex yeah. draws you down into the matter, all those kinds of things. And it's very misogynic and all that. And um, it's fascinating if you read the hermetic literature, this text, it doesn't say any of those things. It says exactly the opposite. It's about the beautiful marriage of, you know, by means of sexual uh, union between matter and spirit. And it's completely positive. So um, this is one example how, in my view, one of the most important thematic texts has been completely misinterpreted mm -hmm. for generation and generations because of our uh, anti-body prejudice. Well, it's, it's a point that, I think is warranted, you know, I'm, I'm in a process of learning Greek right now, and I maybe read like a four-year-old, but I, I could read the Greek, I, I could make some of it out, you know, I, I, like there, there are elements of this academic tradition that takes a certain <laughs> labor to, uh, to really get into the text, and how many people don't do that? Yeah. And, so um, there was a real sense of the problems of not only misinterpretation, um, but mistranslation of yeah. uh, you have those two layers, and you really tended to that a lot, because we're talking about a text that has fragments that have been rediscovered and rewritten, and 
who knows who was doing what and when and how and and these concepts even that you know when i say noose and and we define it in the way that we do it's possible that somebody has a vastly different imaginative um association to that word that external word than i i would today i have to labor to get that um yeah, no, and the point of translation is crucial to my whole argument, uh, because translation uh, comes from a Latin word transfere, which literally means, you know, putting a cross. Like uh, you put some, you have a river, and you put it yeah. from one side of the river, you put it on the other side. So the transfere. So you have to cross some boundaries, some kind of liminal space in between, mm-hmm. and that is what transfere uh, translation translatus comes from transfere. It means crossing a liminal space. So you have something said in one language, let's say ancient Greek, and then you translate it into English, and you think you're translating it straight, but something gets lost in translation uh, because you have to cross that liminal space. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and it is very, very difficult not to um, project your own, let's say, English presuppositions and prejudices back onto the Greek and see something there that isn't there. And this is, um, I think this is a key issue and it happens all the time. So you, so we keep translating. And I, of course, I'm hoping that I'm making a bit of progress here, but what can I say? I mean, this is, an, this is it's, it's, it's very difficult and uh, I might have fallen prey to some mistranslations myself. It's always possible. Sure. It's very difficult. Oh. I, yeah, although if you have the experience, there's no issue with translation. That's what's so unique. If if you can have and maintain, you and I can then share an understanding where we might have differences in our experience, um, and we would note that. That's okay. Of course, we have differences in our experience. Um, but when you know, you know, and that's this this language we hear of the initiate that eyes to see, ears to hear, um, the eyes of the heart, as you said, uh, the, the yeah. ears of heart. Um, so uh, you said something exactly earlier. I mean, just the way you said it just now was exactly right. So when you have this direct experience, then you don't need translation. Yeah, that's, I think, what I yes. heard you say. Yeah. That's exactly it. Uh, so we are on this side of the river in our embodied uh, world in which we are conversing uh, by Zoom (laughs) and so forth. (laughs) It's crazy shit. (laughs) And then there is the the direct non-dual experience of Gnosis, which is on the other side of the river. And uh, once you're there, no translation is necessary. That's exactly, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no need to translate because you're there. And that's the whole point. the problems occur in the moment when you have to put something that's untranslatable into language and it cannot be wholly done. It's uh, because it can never take the place of the direct experience. Well, it's, it's when, yeah, I, I love that. The William James dyad here, the knowledge of about and knowledge of acquaintance that, that I, my intellectual desire seeks to know about something. So I constantly have this part of me as a human being that's wanting to adapt and to soak and to understand and to to have some way of identifying this as that and that is this and that's not that. And yeah. it's it's working consistently throughout my my um my my consciousness. That's and dualistic. Yeah. Dualistic thinking. Yeah. 
and, and that other thing, when we cross the river, um, we might just embrace each other as brothers and cry a little bit. <laughs> we don't give yeah. a shit what you call it, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. No, no, it is something like that. And uh, I mean, and it is not actually so unusual as people think. People think, oh, there's yeah. this weird, very strange mystical experience or something like that. It's not even that. It, it is. It also goes for any kind of knowledge by acquaintance. At the beginning, I said, you know, knowing the person, knowing somebody personally, that cannot be translated into words either. Um, It's very common. We all know it. We we all constantly have cases where we know things that we cannot translate. There's nothing strange about it. This is even mystical. It is just just the fact that some things you know that you cannot translate. And that's the real essence. It's like I was telling my son yesterday, I said, look, man, magic is not what we think it is magic is here mm. it's right here and mm-hmm. and we're it, it, it the nature of my consciousness means that i'm going to have all that residue that accumulates that prevents me from being able to recognize the magic of this lived experience and yeah. how amazing it is to be um yeah. a, a fragment of that universal light that's embodied in a human experience and and well, getting to sounding, taste. Now you're sounding really like an hermetic practitioner. <laughs> what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I felt very much at home in your text, man. I got to say. <laughs> what well, you know, because I I, I I saw myself in this text, and I thought, well, they got that. Those those are the words. Like that's that's putting to words. If we could say, it's bringing into this existence, into dual existence what an experiential aspect of knowing i mean i know i know and then to struggle with it and to how how the how do you say this like how do you communicate god like that word does not do it and i struggle with like it's the all that is all and no thing in simultaneous non-temporal exist like you start going into some (laughs) oh words 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 yeah yeah (laughs) No, but that's the whole thing. So, so when the pupil taught in, you know, one of the most important texts, the Octoat and the Amiat, the pupil taught with Hermes finally gets there, right? So he has the experience. And the first, the first things, the very first thing he says is, it is impossible to put this in words. That's the very first thing he makes. <laughs> and then, you know, and I see that then people say, yeah, yeah, sure. Of course, I cannot, uh, I cannot express the words, but it has to be taken seriously. This is, oh. this is, most fundamental statement that he makes it cannot be expressed in words and it's It's fucking frustrating frustrating. (laughs) okay so going back for a moment because here we are on like page six of your book that i'm about to say this um but one of the first really uh, interesting um, parts of your book, because again, I'm I really appreciate this text. Um, one of the things that you talked about was this: you were setting up this journey from you know into Egypt or into the tip of Egypt in Alexandria, and right. talking about the priestly class and the yeah. way you portrayed it was that the priest, if we could call this person that, the priest was setting up a situation for the initiate or, or the uh, this individual to have an experience. And yeah. it wasn't believed to be false. It, you know, like he's using a, a light source and on the water yeah. and 
all of a yep. sudden the initiate's talking to Asclepius, and nobody's gonna say, "Ah, man, you're fucking around." Like you're yep. just you're just playing jokes because that's the whole point. And would you would you start with this because? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I have a chapter in which I introduce the reader to Egypt, and you know, one aspect here is important is that. Um, there is this kind of general assumption that all of this was centered in, in Alexandria, right? Uh, right mm -hmm. to the north, Alexandria, the great Hellenistic city where Greek was the common language and so on, and where Egyptians were actually minority, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. um, there were less Egyptians there than uh, people from other countries, uh, from other backgrounds. Um, and so that's the, that is the assumption, but I'm arguing and i'm not the only one i'm i'm really really standing on the shoulders of other people like christian bull who has written a wonderful dissertation a couple of years ago about these topics um no actually if you uh, then go down the nile or up the nile you, you know you go north uh, go south you go to upper egypt upper egypt is south and uh, so it's 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 the other Flip. way around then actually I think there's much reason to assume that uh, that the center of the hermetic spirituality was not in Alexandria, but was uh, more down south, uh, in in areas that were less influenced, less heavily influenced by Greek and more Egyptian. Mm. And so you have this, um, yes, you have this, well, these priestly traditions, and the situation was that, you know, the Roman conquerors, the Roman uh, Roman occupiers did not like Egyptian religion. They uh, they uh, they had contempt for religious practices uh, of the Egyptians, and so what you see is that priestly classes, you know, withdrawing. They you know the temples are falling into disrepair, and they feel you know isolated and uh, not not respected in a way that they that their religion would uh, would deserve. And so, in this context, it looks that it looks like certain um, priests, in this priestly context, there must have been groups that came together um, to, uh, yeah, to do practices, to practice this kind of spiritual path. So, yeah. So Christian Bull in this book has emphasized the the importance of priests, uh, you know, to the hermetic spirituality, and I think this is very convincing. Um, now what I'm doing is uh, is I'm also connecting. I'm strongly connecting uh, this hermetic spirituality with a practice that's known as theurgy, and uh, that's mm. I think that's an important uh, term here. Theurgy is usually associated with the Neoplatonists, especially with uh, Iamblichus. So mm -hmm. you have Plotinus, the founder of Neoplatonism. You have Porphyry who has uh, edited the works of Plotinus. And then you have uh, Jamblichus, or Iamblichus, who came from Syria, and um, in my firm firm opinion, has studied and practiced in uh, Alexandria, so he knew Egypt, and um, who yeah, developed an understanding of Platonism that was different from, um, from Plotinus and Porphyry. And the difference was precisely the emphasis on embodiment. Well, there you go again. So embodiment. So this was not a disembodied, but an embodied Platonism. And uh, what Iamblichus was saying, and I think this is very, very close to what you find in the Hermetic literature, is that, um, yeah, this I have to explain again a little bit. Um, 
the standard kind of neoplatonic idea that you find in Plotinus and uh, Porphyry and so on is that the human soul descends into the body, but uh, a part of the soul remains in the spiritual world uh, up there. Hmm. So there's this this kind of umbilical cord, so to speak, that is the, that is keeps connecting us with the higher world, and therefore, according to Plotinus and Porphyry, um, by means of philosophy, it is possible possible to reconnect with the spiritual part of our soul, which is up there. And so, uh, and that is what philosophy is all about. Um, so this idea that the soul does not fully descend. Now, Ayemblichus was uh, different. And I think in this respect, I, I think this is the pattern that you find in the Hermetica as well. Uh, he was saying very shockingly for his predecessors that the soul uh, is completely embodied. So there's nothing of our soul that is left behind that stays in the upper world. Our, our entire soul plunges, so to speak, into matter and into, into the body and nothing is left behind. In my book, I use the analogy of, you know, it's like bungee jumping without a rope, right? So you, um, <laughs> there's no rope. Uh, so you uh, bungee jump, there you are. Uh, yeah, bungee jumping without a rope. Like you, so you, the soul gets lost in matter. And uh, for someone like Porphyry, that Jamblichus was in contact and correspondence with, this would be a horrible idea. So the soul gets lost in matter and there's no way it can save itself, right? Because there's no connection left to the upper world. And, um, and Jamblichus um, uh, said, no, it, 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 he had a very different perspective. He said, yes, it's true that philosophy cannot get us there. We have no connection left. We are completely lost in matter, yes. And because that's the case, the gods have to come to our aid. They have to help us, they have to save us. And you cannot do that. So you cannot reach the gods through, through philosophy, but what you can do is you uh, organize rituals, uh, ceremonies um, that um, which are done in such a way that uh, you create conditions for the gods to appear. Mm -hmm. And um, so the conditions have to be right. The right ceremonial context, the right words must be said, the right kind of smells or incense and all kinds of stuff must be there. If you do it right, if you do the rituals right, then the gods will appear and they will come to our aid. So instead of doing it ourselves by reaching back to our soul up there, in the spiritual world, um, it's the other way around. The gods come down and they help us and they uh, and they try they heal us. So it's about healing. It's about healing the soul. And this was a radical perspective. So this has nothing to do anymore with the Platonic cave, right? And mm -hmm. uh, this is really something. This is really the embodied perspective of uh, Diotima. So Iamblichus uh, um, has this perspective that you do rituals. This was called theurgy. Theurgy means literally the work of the gods. So gods at work, as one of my sections is called. So, so you do rituals, you do the ceremonies, and then the gods come down, they appear, and they start helping you, and they start healing you and cleaning you from bodily accretions and from the poisons that have taken possession of our body and those kind of things. They even allow the soul to temporarily leave the body on a kind of vacation trip to the spiritual world. And then while the soul has left the body, um, the body, the physical body, it's, uh, is uh, cleaned by the gods 
of all kinds of accumulated uh, negative stuff. It's cleaned. And so the soul returns and then it finds its uh, house cleaned. And, um, and then there are things you can do in order to keep your body pure and so on and so forth. Mm. And so this was a kind of a very embodied ritual ceremonial practice, theurgy. Um, and for uh, Jan Belichus, that, was, that, is what, that is what really what it was all about. Now he refers explicitly to the ethic literature and I take that very seriously. I think that he um, had direct experience um, in Egypt with hermetic practitioners. I see him as, an, as a practitioner of the hermetic path of Hermes. Um, he was in, in connection with, uh, probably with priests there in Alexandria who were doing this. So his book uh, that's known as De Mysterious, the book on the mysteries of, of the Egyptians, a kind of classic text, uh, contains a lot of a uh, lot of discussion that I think is directly relevant for understanding the hermetic literature. So yeah, so what these people were doing. So you are in an um, you're in an, let's say in a temple sanctuary. Might also be other places. It could also be at somebody's home, but let's say a temple sanctuary. And then you have to do the right things in order to uh, make sure that that yeah that the gods will come down. You're not attracting the gods. You're not invoking them. The, the gods come out of their own accords, out of their free will. But they will do it when you create the right conditions because the gods are good and they are very willing to help you. So if you do it right, they will not fail to fail mm. to appear. Right? So, and this is the other important point. Uh, yeah, yeah, because Porphyry thinks that Yamlichus is advocating some kind of magic, you know, drawing down the gods, forcing them to appear, those kind of things, like magic. Mm-hmm. And Yamlicha says, no, that's not, not what it's all about. The gods come out of their own will. I'm not forcing them. I'm not commanding them. And nobody can. They are totally uh, superior to us. They come out of their own volition because they are good. And they are out there to help us if we uh, welcome them. So that's, yeah. So I think theurgy is an important, uh, you know, context to keep in mind if you read our hermetic literature. How, how much... Um substance how much are drugs used in these yeah 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 that's an that's a very <laughs> interesting question i have some 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 discussions of that uh, there's very very little um you know direct evidence uh, in iambliches in de mysterious there's one passage which twice refers to something like potions but we do not know what it is we simply don't know um so yeah i find it likely that maybe there was something that they ingested, but we have not a clue what it may have been. It's, mm-hmm. We simply don't know. And I don't like to speculate about things I don't know. Um, so yeah, that's one thing. Um, there's another thing that is the, the use of incense, uh, mm-hmm. especially so-called kufi incense, which was well known and uh, which was used all over Egypt. And um, there is reason to assume that uh, Kufi incense had mild narcotic uh, 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 properties. There, there's a description by Plutarch, for instance, who says that the influence of Kufi um, brightens the soul like a, like a mirror, like it's, uh, mm-hmm. it does something, it, somehow it empowers the soul. Um, and it's interesting here. I mean, we think of uh, entheogens or as uh, psychoactive substances, like so you take this substance and then it has an effect 
effect on your mind. Uh, I think we should consider the possibility that these people were not thinking about it like that at mm -hmm. all. What you were doing, what you were doing is simply you are doing a ritual. If you want to do it right, if you want the gods to appear, a number of conditions must be right. One of them is there must be incense. And incense is kufi. So you burn the incense. I'm, I'm not sure whether they thought, okay, now I see the gods because I have inha I've, uh, I've inhaled uh, incense, the kufi incense. Mm -hmm. I think rather that you burn the incense. If you don't burn the incense, then the gods will not appear. Then the gods do appear, not because you are under the influence of an hallucinogen, but because the gods appear because you've done the ritual right, including burning the incense. Mm -hmm. So the burning the incense is... Um, something that needs to be done. And of course, people did breathe it in, and of course it did have an effect on the mind. But I'm not so sure whether they actually saw this as causal, as a causal connection. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Kufi was there. Um, so this must be one part of the puzzle. Um, spoke speaks about potions. We do not know what it is. Uh, in the hermetic literature, there's not a single reference to anything that could could could, could suggest psychoactive substances. Nothing. Uh, so that is, we simply don't know. Um, the one other text that I refer to, and I think you had that in mind when you asked the question, is a uh, text from the Greek magical papyri that I mm. talk about a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, the so-called Mithras liturgy, um, which basically you know, to use modern terminology, could be seen as a kind of a trick report. I mean, it is really, mm. uh, it is really a trick. So the the practitioner is a woman, and she uh, does ritual invocations, uh, prayers, and so on. At one point, she is lifted up into the air. She sees the planets glowing at her as if they're going to attack her, like it's very, you know, strange experience. Then she moves on further at one point, um, she gets closer to the sun, then the sun opens up, and out of the sun, I'm just cutting it short, comes the god of the sun, uh, Helios Mitros, uh, who, who comes out of the sun and answers our questions. Now, it's an, I'm going to summarize it very quickly. So there are all kinds of strange events that are happening in this uh, text. And what I find amazing, uh, it's a famous text, uh, you know, discussed by many scholars, um, you know, a lot of commentaries on it. Uh, there's a lot of scholarship on the Mitras liturgy. Mm. Almost nobody, almost nobody, including the most reliable, greatest specialist on this text, almost nobody mentions or does anything with the fact that one-fifth of the text is a recipe for an, um, for an ointment. Um, and they give the recipe, so they give the ingredients, and they give exact... Um, um, instructions what you have to do um it's one-fifth of the complete text is, is a recipe and in the standard scholarship that i've seen uh with very few exceptions it is just ignored as if it isn't there but i think it's key i think it's key uh what you see is clearly that this ointment has to be rubbed into the eyes uh or around the eyes uh, of course the skin is thin there so you can assume that it has, has to be absorbed by the skin. Then while you're doing this, that's what the text says, you have to invoke, to, to speak this long invocation. That takes time. And of course it takes time for the ointment to have an effect. 
And then eventually, then the person will start feeling that she's lifted up into the air and all these other things happen. Um, yeah, I think for me, it's a no-brainer, really. Mm -hmm. uh, this, is an, uh, this is very clear. You have a recipe. He says specifically, if you do this, you will see you will be super amazed by the effects. And um, that's what it says, literally. So yeah, you have to have description of a an, um, an, uh, psychoactive uh, substance that's erupted into the eyes, and then you have a visionary experience, and you see a god, right? Um, the only problem is that we that with the information we have, we cannot reproduce the ointment because um, some crucial ingredients uh, we cannot identify. Especially there's this plant called cantritis, and uh, it has people have tried to identify the plant plants uh, so far without a success, and it's a key ingredient, so we don't know. But the, but the, the Egyptians who are reading, reading the text no doubt knew what cantritis was. They, they, they knew where to find it, and they could make the ointment. So this is not a hermetic text. This is a text from the Greek magical papyri, but it comes from the same culture from the same period. So it's a uh, suggestive. So there you have direct heart evidence. You have the kufi. You have the ointments of Ayambrichus, but you have nothing in the hermetic text itself, themselves. So this remains speculative. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, it seems interesting that the way you started your book is that the Greeks are looking at the Egyptians and saying, "What what have they what have they got?" You know, and on some level, we're looking at the Greeks and going, "Well." That, you know, and then you've got people that no, no, not Greek, but Egyptian, and maybe not Egyptian, but the business. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. there's there's always some. Uh, I want to say better, but more pure, less less obstructed yeah. um, view of this reality, and I I wonder if we can continue our path along because it seems like in these confluence points you get you get something very powerful that. When when the Egyptian and the Greek come together, there's something that um, yeah. that erupts. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah uh, keep keep us going down this hermetic uh, process. So, yeah, what you're alluding to here is again the way. By the way, this is why I call the book Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination. I didn't explain that yet, but maybe I can. Yes. <laughs> yeah, historical imagination. What I mean is that. Scholars are human beings like everybody else, and they imagine these things. They have their own ways of imagining the past, the historical imagination. And a lot of the interpretations of the Hermetica have been heavily influenced by an, yeah, an ideology, it should be called, uh, that I refer to as Philhellenism or mm -hmm. Hellenophilia, the, the love of all things Greek. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I mean, I can totally understand the love of all things Greek. It's a fantastic, rich, fascinating culture. So there's nothing wrong with loving Greek uh, culture, uh, on the contrary. But uh, Philhellenism uh, is an ideology that you can trace through the 18th, through the 19th and into the 20th century, which became dominant among scholars, among classics and other people in this field, working in this field. And the idea was basically that, uh, well, uh, true superior civilization and western civilization is based upon the greeks and the greeks uh, so basically in ancient greece the light of reason and science began to shine and began to drive away away the darkness of <laughs> yeah of superstition and magic and uh, all those kind of things 
where did the superstition and the magic come from? Egypt. Not just Egypt, it came from the Orient, from the East. So there's a lot of discussion nowadays about, about Orientalism, right? But you already see here this idea that um, Greek, Greek stuff, rational, scientific, good, right? And then its counterpart is the Orient. The Orient is irrational. It is threatening. It's dangerous. And uh, Egypt is a key, uh, key example of the East in this story. And I mean, this also this resonated with other kind of typical biblical stories, like, of course, the people of Israel get liberated out of Egypt. You have this kind of opposition. Egypt has a lot of length of darkness, of magic, idolatry, superstition, mm. you name it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the positive counterparts, which is either the people of Israel get liberated out of it, and then you have uh, Greece has the length of where the light of reason starts to shine. Well, you know, that kind of story has become so so dominant because basically when modern scholars began studying the hermetic literature, texts written in Egypt, written in Egypt, but in the Greek language, so it's a combination of Egypt and Greece. Uh, so then the question is, okay, what is it? Is it Egyptian or is it Greek? And uh, almost all scholars uh, had this kind of knee-jerk reaction, like it must be Greek. We must claim it for Greece. Uh, and it cannot be too Egyptian because that makes it irrational and backwards and primitive and what have you. So you have, and so you have this Philhellenist agenda. And the strongest example is the great French scholar, I mentioned him earlier, uh, André-Jean Vestigier, who wrote mm -hmm. the fundamental work about, uh, about Hermetica, the first part of the 20th century. And yeah, he had this dominant Philhellenist agenda. He wanted to prove that, that the Egyptian stuff was just marginal, not of any importance. It was everything important in the Hermetica was Greek. Um, and um, therefore, it was not dependent on these dangerous Oriental influences. No, it was Greek. And um, and anything, if it, yeah, simply because he, he has spent such a large part of his life studying this stuff, and you want to convince yourself that it's worthwhile, that it's valuable. It can only be valuable if it is rational and mm. if it's philosophical, if it is Greek. Um, and you see even more strongly, by the way, um, uh, one of the most influential translations, large four volume ultimately four-volume translation by Walter Scott of the Hermetica, which is still being read a lot, is he came, you know, he came from the same perspective. And uh, so this was, so Walter Scott was, an, well, the kind of classicist who knows Greek by heart. He can play with it, you know, he can read it like the newspaper. But he, um, he was reading the Hermetica, and he was basically cleaning up the text wherever he found irrational, backwards, uh, magical, mm. superstitious stuff. He just said this cannot be right, and he starts changing the text. Actually, so he is so the whole text gets the whole Greek text gets cleaned up, so to speak, so as to ultimately turn it into some kind of neat rational treatise that philosophers can take seriously. But in doing so, he completely falsified what the text was all about and um you know this is what's been going on so so what you see after the second mm -hmm. world war new generation of scholars like um uh frenchman uh, jean-pierre mahe and the later mm -hmm. garth fauden very important book the egyptian hermes in the 80s 
yeah, they start turning the turning the uh, turning it in the other the, the other direction and saying no, actually, the Egyptian uh, dimension of the Hermetica is essential, fundamental for understanding this. So they start to push back against this Phil Hellenist agenda and try to you know redress the balance. So it's and also saying it's not just Greek philosophy. So there's the philosophy part again. It is actual. It's well, they would call it religious, I would call it spiritual. So mm-hmm. instead of Greek philosophy, it is Egyptian Hellenistic spirituality. What translation do you like? Like if you're recommending to somebody who wants to study hermetic mm-hmm. spirituality, what, what's your go-to text, yeah, aside be, from your own? Yeah, well, yeah, to be perfectly honest, I'm not satisfied with any of the English translations. Yeah, that sucks. Uh, That's and I am thinking of maybe working together with colleagues. Well, let's see to try to work towards a new translation. Maybe I think, yeah, Um, not that they are bad. I mean, you have the well-known translation by Brian Copenhaver, which is very reliable. Um, You know, I I don't mean to say anything bad about Ah, it. This one, probably. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't mean anything bad about it. It's very precise and very literal. But the problem is that it's so literal that sometimes it becomes unreadable because he just translates almost word for word. And, you know, uh, and sometimes so by translating Greek syntax into English syntax and then they end up with very strange English sentences that, you know, sentences that no English writer would write. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Literally, it's correct almost always. But it doesn't result in uh, very readable translations of them. Of them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. So, so if if you're aware of that, then then Copenhagen's book uh, translation is certainly useful. You have also um, Salomon and a couple of other people who translated it into English, and I have similar reservations there. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that they do that I think is good is they don't translate nous as intellect or mind. They just mm-hmm, nous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a step forward. So you keep it untranslated. It's a new word that we have to learn in our language. So nous as a new word. But if you ask me a translation, if if you go beyond English, I think the old French translation by Vestigere is uh, very reliable, sometimes a bit surprising because and you see kind of certain kind of Catholic kind of tendencies in the translation, but it's that's that's a good translation. There's also an excellent German translation by Jens Holzhausen, uh, which is. Uh, I'm totally yeah. locked out of these. I'm learning Greek. I can't learn German and French. You know that's such a problem. Sorry about, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. true. I'm an yeah. American who uh, who yeah. speaks a, a decent English and. Yeah, you know the six-year-old well, Spanish. For your for your audience, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. So some people yeah. might have German and French, and I hope so so. if you do, and Fessier. Yeah, yeah, good. Those are good recommendations. And so uh, the the other piece again, so many pieces. And if I take us too far too far afield here, um, I, um, you talk about the. Well, maybe just let me throw this word out there. The The word is patriarchy, and of course it brings up this split in gender. And you note uh, diotima is the, is the 
kind of teacher. Yeah. And it seems like it's it reminds me of this. Um, I don't know that that masculine uh, dimension of to define it, to touch it. Of course, it's human, but it um, it's been very male oriented, you know. And then you have this feminine approach. And yeah. I, I'm interviewing a fella um, named Edward Beaver coming up pretty soon on witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, I know. Nice work. It's great. And so yeah. wonderful. And yeah. so we're looking at this male terror of the feminine that's played out certainly in its religious orientation by talking about Eve being this, you know, corrupter. And yeah. so the body and nature being something that needs to be dominated and staved off. So would you speak a little bit about what, maybe what you see, given your knowledge and your expertise, what you see in the relationship between religion and women and men and the kind of slant of religion right. from a male perspective. Right. Yeah, some parts I already mentioned. I think Diotima is a perfect model for the hermetic teacher. I'm not saying that Diotima was a hermetic teacher. I'm not saying that. But uh, I think that um, she is a kind of a model, of a uh, model example of what a perfect hermetic visionary would be, mm -hmm. like direct knowledge. And it's not for nothing that, um, that she fits so well. But so... Uh, one point is that I think there's plenty of reason to assume that uh, hermetic practitioners could be male and female. I think this was not an all-male uh, 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 kind of community, mm -hmm. even yeah. though the the figures that appear in the text are male. So you have Hermes Trismegistus, you have Tot, his pupil, but uh, you have also other people. You have, uh, for instance, the alchemist Zosimos, who I think was another hermetic practitioner. I talk about him at length. So he's the kind of foundational figure for alchemy in antiquity. Mm -hmm. And he was writing letters to his um, friend or pupil, um, Telesebeia, who was a woman working in uh, Panopolis. And he gives her advice, also spiritual advice, about how she can find gnosis and enlightenment. So I think Telesebeia, I think of Telesebeia as a female member of these kind of communities. And I think there's sufficient evidence to assume that men and women could be could be involved in the hermetic, mm -hmm. uh, hermetic uh, communities. About on a more metaphysical level, the ultimate divinity is uh, androgynous, um, and maybe that's also something I should fill in. So the worldview is uh, there are ten levels, and <laughs> that's interesting. So you have uh, seven the seven planets. So in the middle you have to have, have the material world, our world in the center of the cosmos, they have the seven planets that circle around the cosmos. This is obviously far before Copernicus and the heliocentric worldview. So mm -hmm. you have the seven planets circling circling the Earth. But seven, then the eighth sphere is beyond the fixed stars. That is the sphere of souls, the octawatt or the eighth sphere. Um, beyond that is the ninth sphere, the Enneat, which the sphere of powers. Uh, these are powers of light, this is spiritual light, and this is ultimately the same as the noose. So the ultimate, uh, you know, undivisible spiritual light of the noose, that's the ninth sphere, the, the Enneat. And then you have beyond it, you have the, you have the, have the source, Pege in Greek. And so that's number 10, or one, uh, one to 10 or 10 to one, but it depends how you want to count. And well, it's interesting that um, 
in terms of gender, uh, this source is very interesting, the PEG. Uh, it is completely impossible to say anything about it. Uh, so what hermetic authors are saying is that our whole reality comes from a source that we absolutely do not understand. It's completely, mm -hmm. be, utterly mm -hmm. beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. We do not know what it is. We do not know what it is. All we know is, um, is that out of it comes an endless flow of energy, of creativity, and um, of light and creative power. But in itself, what it is, it's completely incomprehensible. Um, so that's the source. So we cannot even say that it is uh, male or female. It is beyond anything that we can imagine. But out of it comes the noose, the, the enyat, the ninth sphere, the sphere of light. And this one is very explicitly androgynous. It is, um, um, uh, is self-generating, as it said, uh, as mm. the text has said. So it is described as this um, entity that can fertilize itself and get fertilized by itself. Uh, it's male and female. And there is, you know, sometimes some texts have very explicit sexual, uh, you know, uh, language to talk about it. At one point in the Asclepius, it says that um, really it uses the, the it, it talks about the fertile power of the, of the noose in terms of very explicit sexual language, like the male and the female, uh, you know, emitting seed and the, and the, and the, and the female part, uh, uh, receives the seed into her womb and so on and so forth and out of that is everything is born so they are not um, they're they are not very prudish they are very explicit about this and um, so the androgyny is important also um, so this 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 grand human that is born out of the light is also an androgynous being but then when he moves forward uh, downwards yeah, towards the material world, then it looks like at that point, gender differentiation begins to appear. So he begins to behave basically as masculine, even though technically he is uh, androgynous. And nature also behaves as female, even though uh, she comes from the same androgynous source. So it's it gets, gets ambiguous there. Um, yeah, so I think more or less you can say that if you move from the ultimate mystery of the source downwards towards matter, you also see the movement from something that's beyond gender towards a level that is um, has both genders, uh, male and female, yeah, towards a level where the two gets differentiated. And then, of course, ultimately you end up with human beings and animals who are male, female, and you get the whole process well, of and you you get the whole process of why men in positions of power with a religious worldview that suggests that women and matter are somewhat evil and to be yeah. escaped from, right. yet this crazy, insatiable desire to merge sexually with the other um, in, a, in a heterosexual dynamic that yeah. that <laughs> shit that creates a lot of pretty messed up people that don't really know how to or am I God or am I some yeah, power hungry demon? Yeah, but yeah, or the power hungry demons. We'll come to that. No, but 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 the point is that in the hermetic worldview, as I read it, um, this kind of anti-feminine kind of perspective isn't there. Yeah. Simply wow. Isn't there. 
Uh, that is so, it's simply there. I think it is really, um, uh, I, th I see no evidence whatsoever for a kind of superiority yeah. of men over women or something like that. Uh, so, and the, and the best example is the story I told you about. So this making love between uh, the, the grand human and nature. Yeah. It's a love story. It's just not a uh, fall into matter or anything like that. Well, and it, I guess if anything, that that is the real genuine approach here is that how do we get to a time where there wasn't such a split and such a force of conflict? I mean, yes, of course, partnerships, whether it's male and male or female and female or male and female, partnerships are going to have conflict. Just because back to what we were talking about earlier, the nature of consensus reality is that we're going to have an either or kind of dualistic dynamic, you know, am I right or are you right? But if we, you know, the the concept that I do want to explore, which is like burning a ember of fire and oneness in my consciousness, is this phrase of becoming the ion. And, you know, becoming the ion... <laughs> Yeah. The, the the distinctions between male and female are I and thou even completely go away. So would you would you talk about that a little bit? I mean, okay, becoming the ion. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that's a very important part of my book. That's true. Um, that's Corpus Hermeticum thirteen. So the thirteenth treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum, one of the most important texts about rebirth. And so, just to summarize for your audience, uh, generally uh, briefly. Uh, so what you see there is. It's a dialogue uh, between Hermes, Trismegistus, the teacher, and his pupil, Tot. And um, it's a very interesting dialogue. It is very emotional and very personal. And what you see is that, um, well, Tot tells his master, listen, Hermes, I have been doing what you taught me. I have been training myself. I've been doing and filling in here meditational techniques and whatever. I've done everything that I needed to, to do in order to receive gnosis, but I'm still still not there. So please tell me what I should do because I'm ready. I'm ready to receive gnosis. And then, um, so he he really insists on this, and Hermes seems to be, um, you know, he seems seems to hesitate, and he gives some vague answers that Tot doesn't understand. And Todd gets angry. He says, why don't you tell me straight how I can find Gnosis? What should I do? Give it to me. And, um, and then Hermes says, well, you know, it's not that I try to be vague, but I do not know what to tell you because something has to happen to you. Something has happened to me. And uh, if this hasn't happened to you, you will not be able to understand what I'm telling you. Mm. Uh, you have to be reborn. And he says, this happened to me. I went out of myself into a new body. Uh, and I'm no longer the one I was before. Um, and, uh, and then he says, this, uh, this mystery cannot be explained. This cannot be taught. I cannot mm -hmm. teach you this. I cannot tell you what happens. You have the experience. So again, the emphasis on direct experience. You, I cannot possibly convey this to you if you mm -hmm. haven't experienced it yourself. Okay, well, then um, Tot is very frustrated because he, um, yeah, yeah, because Hermes tells him, you know, you are looking at me now and you see my physical body, but that is not my real body. My real body, uh, I, I, I have been reborn in a new body and I'm not the person that you see in front of your eyes. 
Now, Tots gets frustrated and angry because he sees the physical Hermes that he has always known. He doesn't see this invisible body of Hermes. So clearly uh, he doesn't have this yeah, disability that he should have. So, and then something interesting happens. You see that he begins shifting into an altered state of consciousness. And there is the Greek word is mania, uh, which is at the origin of our work, like manic and, and so mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. uh, divine mm -hmm. madness. Mm -hmm. Divine madness. So he, something is happening to his consciousness. He is shifting into a strange altered state of divine madness. And when Hermes um, notices that this is the case, he says, oh, maybe what happened to me, the rebirth, is now beginning to happen, happen to you as well. Uh, so this is a hopeful sign. Uh, okay, there are some other things going on, but um, at one point, Todd thinks, well, now I am in an altered state. Now I should be able to see your invisible body, but actually he doesn't see it. So he thinks I'm not making it. I am... He sinks his hair, head no. in despair and he thinks, I'm not going to make it. I, it has all been for nothing. How do I ever fight Gnosis? And then, um, okay, and then Hermes said, okay, maybe uh, it is possible. And he, and there you see the, see the beginning of a kind of a ceremonial technique um, that is described. And you have to fill in things here. here. What is, so you have to fill in what they might actually be doing because it isn't spelled out explicitly. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you connect the dots, then I think what's happening is that Hermes tells dots that, okay, basically you have to uh, be silent, don't speak. I imagine Todd lying down and, uh, and uh, maybe getting into some kind of meditative state, something like that. Uh, it's harder to say. Uh, and then uh, what? Then Hermes starts to invoke 10 powers of light and the 10 powers of light start driving out the 12 powers of darkness from the body of Tut. And, you know, in the book, so this is what you find on the cover of the book. This is, of course, William Blake. And, of yeah. course, it describes God creating Adam. But uh, I think you can also look at this uh, cover, this picture, just imagine that this is Hermes Trismegistus and this is the pupil Tot, who is being who is in a kind of an entranced uh, altered state, and Hermes is uh, here exorcising his body. You see mm -hmm. here these snake-like tentacles here that represent something like the dark powers that uh, are that are being driven out of the body of Tot. So that's why I chose this cover, this picture. So, um, so what's happening? Uh, yeah, and I have to give some background explanation again. Please. So the real story is, uh, yeah, so the story is this, that um, so the moment a soul is born in the body, um, so you go through all the planetary spheres and you finally end up in a body. And, um, and this happens at a specific time and a specific place, right? So you are born in a specific place, obviously, and not in this place and not in any other place. So think about this as like a kind of like a like a kind of mathematical grid. So you can uh, pinpoint somebody's location, right? In a kind of an, um, yeah, mathematically, this is where you were born. But at the same time, you can also pinpoint the moment uh, this person is being born, and that is done astrologically. 
yeah, because you can think of the heavenly bodies as a gigantic clock, any specific moment in time is defined by the exact moment where all the planetary bodies or all the heavenly bodies are at that specific moment. A few seconds later, something has already shifted and the stars are not exactly, and the heavenly bodies are not exactly the same place anymore. And um, so this is the element of astrology, which points to uh, the specific quality of time. Um, any moment is uh, different from any other moment and any moment is defined by the exact uh, location of all the planets. That's it. so you think mm. of the planets as kind of a heavenly clock. Now, if you think about it uh, like that, you're being born at a specific place and a specific time that's unique. There is no other place in time like that, only that planet. And um, the moment you're born, um, there are daimonic beings, so you know, spiritual entities, let's say, that are linked to the specific heavenly bodies at that specific moment. And the way I try to describe it, this is like you, you have this gigantic grid, like think about a matrix, like grid of vertical and horizontal lines, right? And here comes the soul that appears in matter, in the body, it's born. And suddenly there's this blip on the radar and suddenly, oh, there's a new, new person being born, right? In time and space. The moment that this happens, the daimonic entities that preside over that time and place notice the presence of a newborn and immediately invades the body of the child. And this happens to all of us. So it happens to you, it has happened to me, everybody, without exception, the moment we are born, according to the hermetic authors, um, our bodies and our souls get invaded by the precise astrological diamonds that have to do with this specific time and place. And they stay, and, and they stay there for the rest of our uh, our, our life, normally, mostly. And um, and there's one personal beautiful text, I think, in the Hermetica, which says that, well, they are in our body, they are in your blood, they are in your guts, they are in your brain, uh, they are everywhere. They have inhabited your body. And these daimonic entities are responsible for, um, how do you say, for um, binding binding the soul to the body and limiting it in the body hmm. and um, so that you only see uh, one specific time and one specific place so I cannot function in the body if I see everything at the same time uh, I what I see is my room right now I see the screen with you there uh, I know that I'm at this this specific moment I'm not in the past I'm not in the future I'm here now uh, be here now you know <laughs> so, yes <laughs> that is why uh, so so and that is what you need in order to function uh, normally and it, but um it is the daimonic entities that uh, do that that bind our soul to the body in this way so that we are focused in time and space um at the same time these daimonic entities are also responsible for um for the emotional passions that uh, dominate our consciousness that's very important here. Uh, so um, for the hermetic authors, um, the body is not bad. The, the, the body is neutral. It's just just a body. Uh, what is what's problematic is the is the passions mm. that dominate our consciousness, the emotional passions like lust, like anger, like grief, like sadness, like all this kind of 
passionate uh, you know emotions that we feel and that dominate us in all kinds of ways and they come they are steered so to speak speak by the daimonic entities in us so um and so, so you're born at, at a specific moment specific astrological moments which means that you're extra susceptible let's say to getting angry so uh, so let's say my i have a tendency to get angry easily that's because i have a very strong diamond in me that makes me angry that fires my passion of anger and it is astrologically based someone else might be prone to depression it's a strong depression uh, diamond in him or, or her and so on and so forth so this is the whole constellation of emotions and so those are the limiting conditions that is why we suffer you know, we suffer not because of the body, but we suffer because of our passions in our body, which, um, uh, yeah, which make us feel anger and sadness and grief and all these kind of things. And they, they uh, draw us away, so to speak, from uh, seeing reality as it really is. They mm -hmm. uh, cloud our consciousness. They, uh, uh, they lead us into a kind of a maze of hallucinations, basically. So that's what we're doing. All of us are, are hallucinating our way through our life, basically, under the influ influence of these daimonic entities in us. So that's more or less what they say. Um, that's, that's, that's what you read here. Now, okay, now I'll get back, back to the text finally. Sorry for the long explanation. No, but, but to but say this that... This is essential I, for understanding what's, what's happening here. But, but, uh, the value here is psychotherapeutic on some level. Like there's, there's a... There, so, so to experience joy to have joy have the capacity for joy there's something about shame and to to need to eat means that i can have too little or too much you know that and that the nature of how i approach something like eating can yeah. deplete me or can exaggerate that need so that i'm burdened by the the too muchness and so therein lies the suffering and so these folks are really looking at the psychotherapeutic, the soul work of how to cleanse a body that's simply being a body. And if we can get out of this, oh shit, you're so self-important, but know that self-importance is related to something that's a natural expression of human existence, it's just out of sync. It's, it, it's, it's, it's become greedy or too much or too little. And that yeah. these processes are the cleansing processes um, right. of that nature. Right. Okay, right. I just want to say no, that. Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. And I'm happy that you mentioned the psychotherapeutic because that's true. Uh, I think that a lot of Hermetica has to be read psychologically yeah. and psychotherapeutically. It is about healing the soul. It's yeah. really about healing the soul from negative influences, from negative energies, and so on. It's really, really about that. And um, yeah, absolutely. And. The element of addiction is important. Uh, yeah. We basically get addicted to these um, to these uh, daimonic energies. They addict us. They bind us to. We they limit our freedom. Now that is really what they say. It's so uh, good. It's so yeah, good. Addiction. I know. I know. It's fantastic. It's very impressive. It's very impressive. So and, and coming back to the text. So now what happens here is and this I think is a key moment in the in the way of Hermes, as it's called, or the path of Hermes. So, uh, Tot is lying there in a kind of an entranced, altered state. It's not entirely clear what happens, but something like that. And um, Hermes starts invoking ten powers of light, 
that drive out the 12 powers of darkness. Now, the 12 mm. powers of darkness are 12 because they're linked to the zodiac. Mm. For reasons I just explained, they're linked mm. to the zodiac. So there are 12 of them. And so they're names, uh, all 12 of them. I do not have the list here, but you, so grief and lust, mm -hmm. etc., etc. So you have all 12 of them. And they're being driven out. Driven out by what? By the powers of light. Uh, and there are 10 powers. Exam well, again, why 10? Well, because of the, the hermetic universe has 10 levels, um, as I just said. So you have the Pega, you have the uh, Eniat, you have the Octawatt, and then you have the seven planetary levels. So what happens is that um, Hermes invokes 10 powers of light, first, uh, first seven linked to the planets, and they, one by one, one planet drives out its corresponding daimonic entity, then the second drives out another daimonic entity, mm. so all seven. Then in the end, uh, five uh, of the 12 uh, daimonic powers are left, right? And then um, suddenly the final, the highest three powers of light arrive altogether. Um, so the power powers of the of the eight and of the ninth and of the source itself, of the good. Mm. And they together arrive and they, yeah, like I write it in my book, like they blow away, you know, the rest of the five uh, entities, like, you know, in some kind of final burst of energy. So, um, so now all the 10 powers of light have arrived, they have come down, and they take the place of the daimonic powers in Tat's body, and they weave themselves into a new body. And um, so the daimonic powers are gone, and instead there's this new body of light, of spiritual light, that is now taking the place of the daimonic powers. Now, this is something that uh, almost never happens to normal human beings. Most of us will die with those diamonds in us, uh, because that is just the way it is. Uh, but uh, so the the claim of these uh, of Corpus Maticum 13 is that it is possible for a small elite, for people who are really, really dedicated uh, to reach the point that Tot reaches here in which uh, he can be reborn, his diamonds are driven out and a new body of light takes its place. Now, that happens here. It's very rare and special. So this is a, is a condition for Gnosis to, to be reborn like that. And the moment that this happens, uh, Tot immediately exclaims what happens to him. His consciousness has changed radically. And what happens is exactly what you, exactly what you could expect. His consciousness is no longer bound to time and place. Mm. Uh, it's no longer bound to time and place because the diamonds are gone. Um, and therefore his body is limitless. Sorry, his, not his body, his, um, his consciousness is limitless. It is no longer bound to time and space. And so you hear him saying, I'm everywhere. I'm in here, I'm in India, I'm on the other on the other side of the universe. My consciousness is everywhere at the same moment. Uh, and it is at every time. I'm in the past, I'm in the future, I'm in the present. Um, and this description of um, the kind of universal cosmic consciousness, literally cosmic consciousness of thought, you also find in another text of Hermetica, Corpus Hermeticum 11, uh, where I have a very beautiful, uh, yeah, very poetic uh, description of this state, which is called becoming the ion. So there you mm -hmm, have the term mm -hmm. becoming the ion, which means becoming, basically, it means becoming uh, 
or changing your consciousness into the, the consciousness of God himself. Because that's the point. God himself is beyond time and space. God's consciousness is everywhere. It's not limited to a place or a time. And um, the moment the pupil gets reborn into the body of light, the body of light is equivalent to the body of God himself. It is total light and it is everywhere. And so um, this is not a situation like the Gnostic story where the spark of light reunites with the great light up there and leaves the body. It's rather another another way of thinking about it. It is, means that our consciousness becomes the consciousness. We comes to participate in the consciousness of God himself. Mm -hmm. So we see what God himself sees. God sees everything and everywhere at the same moment. And so do we at the same everywhere and all moments and all, all places at the same time. Sorry, yeah, you can, you can, you're not going anywhere, you're really seeing, yeah. you see. I want to read this because it's so, it's such an yeah. important uh, paragraph. Yeah. Uh, it's from your, your, on page 214. Yeah. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, it looks like 11, um, chapter 11. So all beings are in God, not as though they were in some place, but in a different manner. They rest in his incorporeal imagination. You must conceive of God as having all nomata, nomata, nomata in himself. Noemata, actually, noemata. Yeah. Noemata, thank you. That's my, that's my Greek lesson for the day. That's right. Um, it, those of the cosmos himself, the all, therefore, unless you make yourself equal to God, you cannot understand noesai, God. Like is understood only by like. Allow yourself to grow larger until you are equal to him who is immeasurable. Outleap all that is corporeal, transcend all time, and become the ion. Then you will understand. Noesis, God. There you go. That's it. So to this me, is an extremely important moment. Yeah. I, I read that and just sat there and stared at it for about five minutes. I mean, to me, that was the essence of essence. Like it <laughs> just thank you. For exposing me to this, the this series of words that make so much sense to me that help open portals, it seems I'm just yeah, yeah. so yeah. So this idea of it's a it, it it crashes so much of the fundamental structure of my own theological orientation, and that this kind of hierarchical dynamic where this flaw here and beauty there and inex inaccessible. It just collapses the whole thing, and yeah. Yeah. it's magic. Yeah, it is absolutely true. It is I mean, even thinking. I mean, we know it's absolutely. I had similar experience. It is very, very impressive, and uh, and it's true. I mean, even thinking hierarchically about. So we tend to think the sources up there, right? And then you have the noose, and then under that you have the eight, and then you have the planetary spheres. But actually, not even that is correct because there is no no space. Yeah. Yeah, it so it's not like the eight sphere is stacked on top of the of the cosmos of the night above up above that. No, there is no space. There's no space. Yeah. How do you how do you categorize when you're talking about that which is beyond categorization? Yet we have to categorize it. That's that confusing space of I'm in just to know. Yes, I'm in a dual existence, and this is the folly and the humor. And the joke 
the cosmic joke of my existence is the struggle that I experience in duality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very hermetic to put it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. No, absolutely. I think I've found my people, Walter. I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, what is so impressive is that these texts were written in the second, third century, somewhere around that time. As I explained, they have gone through being copied and recopied, mm-hmm. and people have made mistakes and uh, have added words to it and interpretations. So it has gone. So we we so so much has happened over so many centuries to these texts, and nevertheless, uh, we have them now, and these are deep, impressive texts. They have somehow something essential has has survived in spite of everything, and. You know, I have to say that I, you know, I feel a bit protective on behalf of, of the text. Uh, that, you know, so many earlier scholars, earlier 20th century, have dismissed the hermetic literature like uh, second or third hand philosophy, like, you know, feeble minds who uh, who, who were not really understood the depths mm-hmm. of philosophy. Bullshit. Uh, yeah. Really. Uh, it yeah. is, these are very fundamental, very complex, very uh, sophisticated text. And I think there, I personally think there must have been some kind of original genius uh, behind this. Um, and so we do not know. I can only speculate, but I write a little bit about this in chapter nine. Um, there is the story, there's Hermes Trismegistus, right? Uh, who is the, 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 the kind of archetypal teacher in the text. Mm-hmm. And then there are these references to um, his own master, uh, Agathos Daimon, the good Daimon, and um, and um, and what Hermes says is that Agathos Daimon was his teacher, and, and he never wrote anything down, uh, never. Uh, he just spoke or- orally, and so there is this kind of vague idea of the presence of some guy in the Fayum area, maybe there in in ancient Egypt. I think that I cannot prove this. This is speculation on my part, but I think there has been some very, very brilliant person there at at at, at this time, so some some kind of charismatic uh, personality with him, mm-hmm. with brilliant insights, who has been gathering a small small community around himself, and from there on the, the tradition has continued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Simply because if you read this text from this perspective and you are attentive to the psychological and the psychotherapeutical aspects and all that, then, I mean, the more I read it, the more impressed I am. This is, uh, this is deep stuff. It's deep stuff. It's some of the deepest I've ever... And, you know, there's this really interesting connection with the Tibetan tradition that I find to be oh. fascinating. I, uh-huh. I, I recently revisited uh, an interview that I did with a fellow named Miles Neal, who's a psychologist and Tibetan practitioner, he wrote a book called Gradual Awakening. He's very astute and in, incredibly well-spoken. But in, in, in thinking about this material and also listening to him, he talks about this state of deathlessness. Ah. And to me, the deathless state is, this, ah. is the ion. You know, there's, there's a deathless... Once you experience your own death and you merge into this oneness of deathlessness and to then come back so to speak again words or words but come back into this embodied existence you're totally transformed 
and and he his his forthcoming book is called the elixir of life and the way they frame this is that you in the heart it's not the measurable heart but in the heart center you these processes create droplets and these droplets are the elixir of immortality and mm. immortality is not envisioned as this body would envision immortality and that i live forever but that i've achieved uh, the, the the practitioner has achieved a state of deathlessness that merges with this ion and becomes the god experiencing itself mm. in a cosmic loop and the yeah. The difficulty, though, that, that Miles and I talked about is coming back from the mountaintop and saying, how do I now live a human existence right. experiencing right. what I've experienced? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, there are two things that I think about when I hear you say this. I mean, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, one thing is, yeah, what, what do you do afterwards when you come down the mountain? So, so let's, let's come back to this in a moment. Yeah, the other, but the other thing is death, life and death. One, thing, one point I make in my book is that uh, for the hermetic practitioners, uh, death does not exist. Yes. There is no such thing. There is yes. only life. And this has to be understood radically. There is only life, nothing else. Um, um, but the interesting, so what's... what's they understood as death was not the death of the body because the body uh, recycles and yeah. uh, and the soul just goes on. Nothing ever, nothing ever really dies. And they're very explicit in the text. There is a whole series of points where they say this death does not exist. Period. Um, but uh, what does exist is a state of death, a kind of state of limited consciousness in which we are not entirely aware of life. And so uh, the only thing that exists is life. The universal life is the universal light and life of the any after the octopus of the highest spheres, universal life. But uh, when you get embodied in the body, then you forget perceiving life as it really is, mm. and you fall into a state of death, into a death state. Uh, so we are actually, so we think we are alive, right? And then after death, we are dead. It's actually yes. the other way around. We are dead. Yes. And uh, when we die, we become alive. We become aware again of the universal life. It's exactly yes. the other way around. And, um, but it is fascinating because, so they do play with the life and death, the death terminology. And um, yeah, there's one passage in one of the texts where, uh, they talk about the ultimate state and they call it the death state. Uh, but the understanding is the death state is actually the state of life. And mm -hmm. so, so they keep, you know, playing with these dualities. Well, yeah. it's, it's a weird, because you, you ha you're using the dual language to express something and, and to flip it, to be dead. I am yeah. dead. And what does that do for my existence when so much of my life has been structured on this ultimate fear of uh, of of the impermanence of my life? And in facing that, it it creates a totally transformative reality that yeah. uh, that e e all of our conditions are put into question, and it's it's a like the, the the real spiritual path becomes one that is not about how you bow and how you 
um, say 10 things in this order and that order. Those are important, I think, because you, and I want to get into this because you speak a lot about ritual and about music and about certain yeah. kind of sonic um, vibrational structures that that do the unlocking, that participate in the unlocking. Right, but right. Th th that state of, of the flip that no, I'm I'm dead is is yeah. very it's radically different. Use the word flip, like our friend uh, Jeff. Oh, Jeff talks about that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I have I was thinking about I just have his book that oh, yeah. just came here, brand yeah. new, and uh, yeah. and it gets into a lot of this material that you and he, of course, share. And it's hard right. not to think about him in this conversation because we're talking about the what can completely reorient these fundamental associations of our existence, one of those things is trauma. Yeah. And I think he talks quite a lot about how trauma kind of cracks open for the paranormal. The other, of course, I think, are these drugs that people have created and take, going into caves and sensory deprivation, starving yourself and being physically exerting yourself, chanting and being in community, being held by other people. And then mm -hmm. these small communities of people are built or grow around these experiences. Yeah. And this Hermetica is, I've just not been exposed to a, a text that I feel so um, brought home to. Mm -hmm. I, I'm very impressed myself also. Yeah. yeah. I say, no, no, I mean, you're just, just, I've been living with those texts for years and years, and it's just really. And I, as I say on the very final page of the book, I'm absolutely sure that uh, when I return to this text, I will start seeing new dimensions yes. that escape me. And this is not going to stop. These are profound texts. These are like classical literary texts. Like they do not get exhausted. Well, yeah. you're you're talking about what you said at the beginning. I'd like to talk about what you said at the at the end. At the beginning, you talk about how any author puts a spell on you and this magic that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right can can entrance you and take you into places you've not otherwise been. This book certainly did that. You accomplished your task of putting a spell on me as a reader. And I'm I'm hooked, Valter, totally hooked. Um, so I, I want to be respectful of time and any threads, you know, because we've, we've certainly yeah. been going for a while, and I know you've got to yeah. go. Um, no, there are two things. Uh, I was, you know, I have a bit more time. I have half an hour maximum as, okay. as far as I'm concerned. Then I have to go. Good. But um, maybe two things. Maybe we haven't talked about yet. Good. Uh, uh, I think one is the the ascent to the octave and the amiot. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very important. And because you talked about the rebirth, the you know becoming the ion, yes, I think we have to say something about it. And the second thing you mentioned earlier is. Okay, they come down from the mountain. What are you going to do? Yeah. Right? Yes. Right. So, yeah. can I, shall we talk a little bit about that? Is that Please. Okay? Yes. Yeah, these are great. That, these are great. Because I feel, you know, if I want to give a kind of a complete picture, I think we have to talk about it. So, there is this text transmitted only in Coptic, the Octawat and the Amiat, the eighth and the ninth. And so, this is a text in which you see, again, Hermes and uh, Tot. And Tot is now reborn, so he has become the Ion. He uh, he has universal cosmic consciousness. All of that is there, but then there's still another step he can take, and um, and that is described here. And this is actually uh, here we see him going beyond the cosmos because the becoming the Ion means cosmic consciousness in the literal uh -huh. sense. You yes. are everywhere in the cosmos, but you're not beyond the cosmos yet. Uh, that happens in the eighth and the ninth. 
and um, so, well, well, it's a long story, but there is an, uh, at one point there, at crucial points, uh, there is an invocation of the Greek vowels. So Greek has seven vowels um, and they are used in a ceremonial manner. Now you have in the text, you have this kind of triangle, like you have one alpha, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And then you have the epsilon and the yota, etc. And but um, so you have one and one alpha, and they're, they're followed by two omegas, which is the last of the seven vowels. Mm -hmm. Then you have two epsilons followed by three omegas, then three of the next followed by four, four, five, five, six, seven, eight. So you get an expanded, uh, you know, triangle of of longer and longer and longer strings of vowels, Greek vowels. Now this is well known. You find this in the text, and um, what to do with it? And you find such vowels in other uh, in other manuscripts in this period as well. And um, so I have so my interpretation. I I have to say this is one of the things I'm most proud of because I don't think anybody has ever suggested that. And for some reason I, yeah. Uh, so I I think I discovered this. Uh, maybe because I have a musical background, yeah. I, I studied music in the past. And the thing is that, so you have the seven vowels. The seven vowels are linked to the seven planets of the cosmos. That is well known. So uh, each of them stands for one of the planets. But then you can also link them to the seven tones of the, of the scale, of the musical scale. And then you can sing them. Um, and this is not speculation. There are uh, There are very authoritative texts that explain how the how the vowels and the planets and musical notes uh, can be linked with each other. So if you uh, see this, then you can see that uh, this series of vowels is not just, these people are not just standing there, ah, all, all, no, no, that's not <laughs> what they're doing. They're singing, they're singing, they're vocalizing it on tones oh. and you can sing, um, yeah. yeah, you can sing it. And actually, somebody has uh, has made a very nice recording of it. I have it somewhere. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I don't think I have it here. I don't know whether. Well, actually, if this works, I could actually. Maybe I can. Oh yes, I see where you're going. <laughs> do, can I do this? Shall I try this? If this you should works? try this. Yes, you should try this. So the only thing I have to say here, to have it right, what you should hear is. You should actually have a single voice singing a tone and answered by a an, uh, choir, by a uh -huh. larger group, and then a single again. That's not possible. Here you hear only one voice, so it is not entirely what it should be. But it sounds more or less like this. Hopefully this works. One second. Oh. Mm -hmm. 
I just put it so maybe we shouldn't play oh. the whole one. But this is more or less what it is. Thank and you. Keer, and every time you hear the low voice, that should actually be a larger group of people. Oh, right oh, now. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank and you. And this for is uh, Louis Calero. I would like to give him credit. Good. Uh, wonderful. He just uh, he's a uh, musicologist, I think, and he uh, a singer, and he spontaneously makes this recording for me. That's wonderful. Oh, what a gift. Oh, so, uh, yeah. So what happens is that this is what they do. You have, you must imagine uh, Todd and Hermes standing in a circle, surrounded by the brethren who have already been um, reborn. So all these people have gone through the rebirth. They 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 have become the ion, and um, then the pupil and the master, uh, Todd and Hermes, are standing in a circle. I think that they are holding each other by the shoulders. Uh, there isn't there isn't one moment in the text where uh, Hermes says, uh, "My child," that's how they say hey, they address it to each other. My child, um, let us embrace in love. Let us embrace in love. And after that, the whole uh, ascent of the soul starts. And uh, people usually think, well, it's a kind of a beer hug. You give each other a hug, like let's embrace. But I think it's um, probably, I cannot prove this. This is speculative. But I think that actually they hold each other by the shoulders. So they, uh, they make a connection, a kind of an energetic kind of connection. And they um, keep standing there for the whole duration of the ceremony. Because what happens then is that from that moment on, the powers of light come down. Um, that's what you read in the text. And they ignite the power that has been sent upwards by the voices of those people. So these powers uh, of light, uh, you know, meet. By the way, are you still there, John? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes you freeze and I'm not sure whether you still hear me. Okay, good. Um, Thanks for checking. So they ignite. And, and the moment that these powers going up through the voices and the powers of the light coming down uh, meet, there is a kind of an ignition like, and then mm. suddenly the uh, mind of, or the consciousness of thought is opened and he sees the pega, the source. Uh, and he sees this universal boundless light of moose. And so he sees the souls around him, which are singing. And so you have this spectacular moment of total, um, yeah, gnosis, in which he perceives the souls, the light, and even the pega, the source itself. And the first thing he says is, it's impossible to express this in words. Yeah. And he, um, but he addresses his master, uh, Hermes, who keeps saying, I am the noose. So they have the noose again. So Hermes says, I am uh, the light itself. Um, and you are the light also, so both of us are light and there's no mm -hmm. distinction. Mm -hmm. So you have the non-duality again of the observer who um, is the same as what is being observed. Okay, all kinds of things happen. They have a whole dialogue and you this is this goes in, 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 in details. And uh, then they start actually hearing the, the voices of the souls in the age sphere who are singing to the noose, and so that's a kind of a celestial hymn that's going mm. on there. And then, well, finally, this ends with another series of vowels, and then they are back to earth. And that is the end of the experience. And it's an, you know, it's a very powerful, yeah. uh, ultimate experience that is being described here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, 
Man, like, yeah, there's things we attempt in concerts all the time, but that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, there is a passage which says that the Egyptian priests used to sing vowels like this. And apparently it was very, this was well known that, that priests could do this. And people listened to it uh, because of the euphony of those sounds, like they listened to it like, the, like you listen to a musical instrument, something like yeah. that. So apparently this was very impressive as a performance. And somehow it induced an altered state, a radical altered state of radical unity. Mm-hmm. And whether other things like substances or so were involved, again, we do not know. Mm-hmm. It is just a totally open question. It's easy to jump in there and say, uh, I mean, there, there, I don't know if there had to have been, but it in our current context, there seems to often have to be. And who knows why? Uh, that that may be a huge statement, but you just think about these. Whether you're down in South America, or you've got you know what Carl Ruck has been talking about with whether it's Eleusis or the Amanita Muscaria, like all these different sacramental substances. That on some level, intuitively, I would think that then everybody would kind of join together around that particular instrument of this alternate state. Um, but I, uh, I certainly understand that I don't know what it would be like to fast and then go into a cave for seven days. Yeah, I mean, so many of the circumstances we do not know about. Uh, right. so we, we do not hear where this happens. Um, you can't speculate. It's in a desert, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it does happen in a cave, maybe in a sanctuary. We do not know. They do not explain. They do not explain. Now we burn uh, Kufi... Um, incense or something like that mm-hmm. does it some of these things sometimes people the kind of things that everybody knows uh are not written down because everybody knows uh, right. that you do so but okay i i don't want to go mm. speculating here about things we do not know um uh you know on the one hand yeah you might might hypothesize that something like that's going on on the other hand um i think it was much more common in these cultures and periods uh, to, you know, altered states, I think were, were seen as less uncommon than they are nowadays. I and so totally um, there's, there's a wonderful book by Julia Ustinova, a fantastic scholar of Greek ancient religion, who is, has written a whole book, Mania, uh, Mania in ancient Greece, and who is, you know, she knows all the classical Greek literature, and she's written a large book uh, with all the evidence for altered states in Greek antiquity. Uh, so exactly in the place where many people think this is the, this is the culture of Greek, Greek rationalism, where mm-hmm. actually it's full of altered states. Mm-hmm. And it's not just so, and um, substances are just a small part of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think we have to be careful before we yeah. jump to jump. I, I, I take that, uh, yeah. that concern. So you were also talking about the coming down from the mountaintop. Right, that's the final thing. Yeah, yeah. So that's my tenth chapter. So at the end of this text, the Octave of the Enneat, then you see a kind of a strange epilogue in which uh, Hermes and um, and uh, and Tot are just talking after the ritual. And I begin the chapter like you know the ritual is over, the candles have been put out, the incense has wafted away, and now they find themselves talking about 
what the hell just happened? <laughs> and yeah, basically that is what that's what you see there. It's a bit of a strange text. I think it's it stands on its own. There's some things to be said about it, but um, um, there's something strange about it. It's a point that I find important in my final chapter, and that is that um, you know. So the reason I say this, you'll have to read the book. I cannot explain it now. It's a bit too technical. But mm. um, at the end of the of the of the of the text, it's no longer Hermes, Trismegistus, who's talking. But suddenly we are talking with the ancient god Thot, who was mm. one of the great deities of the Egyptian pantheon. So the great deity, who also appears in a famous text by Plato, uh, the Phaedrus, uh, and here you see the same god Thot. Um, uh, who appears in front of the ultimate god, Amon, the, the highest god in the pantheon, and he has, uh, Hermes, um, Tot has um, invented language, or not language, sorry, not language. He has invented writing, writing, mm. specifically writing. And he comes in front of the throne of Amon and he says, well, Amon, I've made this fantastic uh, uh, discovery, writing. Uh, so now people will be able to remember uh, things that otherwise they would forget. And this is a great thing. So I ask you to, you know, disseminate this great gift and, you know, among the Egyptians. And so this is Plato. Yeah? And, um, and then Amon is not so impressed, or maybe he is impressed, but he doesn't like it. So he tells uh, Tots, well, this gift that you have invented of uh, writing uh, you have not actually discovered an, an, um, a medicine for uh, remembering, but just a medicine for reminding, not mm. the same thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uses the word medicine, which is pharmacon in Greek, of course, on the basis of pharmacy, etc. Pharmacon. And the pharmacon can be a medicine of healing, but it can also be a poison. And it can be all, mm -hmm. all these things in between. And um, so he says, you have uh, created a pharmacon and it's actually, you, create, you claim that this is a great thing, which will, uh, you know, help people uh, uh, remembering things. Mm -hmm. But he says, actually, mm -hmm. people will get distracted by this oh, pharmacon. Walter, hang on. Sorry. I, had a, I have an invader right here in this very wonderful oh, movement. Hi. Ah, fantastic. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Hi, hi. <laughs> hi, honey. Say hi to Walter. <laughs> Say hi. Walter, this is Sufi. Hi, Sufi. He's saying hi, huh? I got. I got to keep going. Okay. I love you. Yes, you may. Here. Thank you. Will you shut the door on your way out? Have a great day at school, honey. Love you. Love you, sweetheart. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Uh, that's 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 very nice kind of invaders that you have. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those are good invaders. That's right. Uh, okay, great. continue. Uh, okay, all right. So, um, yeah, so, um, so, yeah, so we have this fascinating and very famous debate between Tot and Amon in mm. Plato. And um, so, is writing something great, something good, or is it uh, a delusionary thing mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. actually fools us into thinking that we know something, whereas in fact, it makes us forget? Uh, what it's really all about. And so there's this, now, then I use Jacques Derrida, the famous French uh, philosopher, who has written a famous text about this. And I go into greater detail about this and I won't try to do that here. But um, so uh, 
so the question is, um, um, at the end of the Octoad and the Ennead, um, Hermes tells Tot, write it all down so that the memory will not be forgotten. So in other words, he commands him to write it down, even to engrave it in stone, so that future, future generations will be able to read it. Well, of course, we are reading this text now 2,000 years later, or 1,800 years later. And, um, and so, so, so we are now reading this pharmacon, this uh, writing. And the question is, um, who is right? Is Tot right or is Amon right? Mm. Um, Tot seems to have a positive perspective and to say, well, by means of writing, I can tell you about what happened to us. But Amon says, no, you cannot write it down because the experience is inexpressible yeah. in language. Lesson cannot. Uh, so uh, you will tell people, you will give them the illusion that they understand what this is all about, but actually they don't understand, but you will be fooling them. You will giving them, you will be leading them astray by, by, by language, by, uh, by writing, because they will, and literally the text says in Plato that they will know of many, they will seem to know of many things, although in fact they are ignorant yeah. and unpleasant yeah. too. Uh, uh, so because inflated, the, inflated, they <laughs> yeah. will have to, they will, seem to know all these things by writing but they will have lost contact with the real thing that it's all about which cannot be written down so mm. okay now here you are confronted with the essential question about hermetic spirituality gnosis cannot be expressed and all we know about hermetic literature is writing pharmacon which can only falsify the content but cannot actually translate or transmit it <laughs> so oh, now so this is a big dilemma uh, we are reading this now. You're impressed by the text. I'm impressed by the text. Yeah. And we think we understand something about it. But actually, um, if you take them seriously, they're saying, no, you cannot understand it. You have yes. to do it. And otherwise, nothing in the text can transmit the knowledge that it's all about. Well, so this is the big level. And for me, it, it taps into, I mean, th there's a reason why it's called the way. You know, there's the, to to me it it reveals something. It, it's not so much about let me take this thing literally because that what somebody said back then is something that I need to replicate. But it it feels like a familiar traveler, and mm -hmm. and so that by being in relationship to that, it it's a home. It has it's kind of a home, uh, a feeling like coming home, and and if. You can remember that and hold it lightly and gently, but also know that the inevitability of the nature of being human is to grasp. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and then eventually know that you'll need to be cleansed of all the shit you held on to. You know, <laughs> then then you're in this process. But I, what what comes up for me, Valter, as you're talking about this, is that I certainly take for granted something like writing. And even to hear this concept of a conversation about writing as medicine, <laughs> that, that just, that changes everything, you know? They, but the question is, yeah, is the medicine or is the poison? And yes. That's yeah. yeah, and when do you apply it and how do you apply it? And have you yeah. learned the craft? You know, are you, are you respectful and do you have reverence to the craft? Reverence. reverence. That's another word. That came up in your, yes, in your book. 
it's it's not coincidental that you use that word reverence i say yeah. in greek is the key virtue in the hermetica that's important we didn't mention that yet but uh, the yeah. key virtue so ultimately it's not the ultimate ultimately most important thing is not even to have gnosis gnosis can only be attained by very few people because it's too difficult mm -hmm. but all of us can have reverence that's what mm -hmm. they say uh, and whether you have achieved gnosis or not you can be reverent that means you can uh, be respectful with an uh, you can treat the whole world around you and yeah everything that's in it in a respectful um, manner not just respect but um, uh, you can recognize how awesome it is with mm -hmm. all actually and how uh, you can recognize the fact this is really emphasized strongly in the hermetica that we are living in this so it might be difficult to live in, in the body and the material and the you know the passions that mm -hmm. poison our consciousness and all these kind of things but ultimately we are living in a spectacular uh, world that is that comes out of the source which is totally good and beautiful and true and if you don't do not see the goodness and the beauty and the truth that it is because of our limited consciousness yeah. uh, but reality is good it's beautiful and it's true uh, those those three things that is what it really so and we are surrounded by it and it's the only thing that really is mm -hmm. and so the only thing that cannot be forgiven by the gods we, we read at one passage is irreverence if you just uh, respond to this enormous gift of life of light of reality with um you know if you dismiss it if you treat it with irreverence with lack of respect with mm. and that is that is the greatest um vice actually uh, ignorance can be forgiven we are all ignorant and it's difficult to know really and that and the gods can forgive that what they cannot forgive is irreverence uh, so and this is actually a very important mm -hmm. key aspect i think it tells you something about how you should live your life in the world. How you come down from the mountaintop. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I, there's something about um, to, to, to look at all of existence with reverence is to see that expression of um, the all or the, the universal oneness or cosmic, con whatever, you know, God in the other, in, in all of it. In the threads of the rug, in the frog, and the guitar, and the singing voices, and the other person, and that—that yeah. that seems to be the the spark. You know, like how does one live in accordance with that perspective, and then how does that perspective um, change one's life? And I would argue something that I don't think ne is necessarily true. That I think this is to your point. Even without the gnosis, there is something divine about having that shared or des desiring to see existence in that way. Um, so, mm -hmm. so whether you, you have this kind of ion experience or just work right. consistently to love, to connect, and to see the beauty right. of all, um, that's, yeah, a, that's, that's a life well lived. No, but that is exactly, then you come back to Diotima. So what it's all about love eros is about giving birth in the cave so that is what it's all about it's not about uh finding this ultimate bliss of perfect knowledge that's nice that's great for a few elite people but it's really about uh embodying uh the good the beautiful and the true that is what it's about
That is, that's what you find in the symposium. That is what our hermetica says. And that's what Ayamlichus says as well. That is really uh, the key. Walter, I'm, I want to begin closing. And of course, what that means is opening to anything that we've not said. Um, of course, I'm going to ooze gratitude because I, I've just been reading this book for the past number of weeks. And um, I, 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 I'm a beneficiary of your work. And in this case, I consider you writing this down to be a gift, and it's not a poison. Oh, thank it's you very a, much. It's a, really it's a medicine. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else, that any other thread that's kind of left hanging that you... Uh... Uh, I, th I think we've covered pretty much everything, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, I... All, all, all details, but no, I think this was pretty comprehensive, as far as I can tell. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm looking over all my questions, and I think uh, I think we got it. So, okay. fantastic. Um, again, uh, thank you. Um, this conversation, I, I have a little. My secret is that I get to both have the conversation, and then I get to re-listen to the conversation. So I have a yeah. a, a first. Maybe maybe I can say I have a first, second, and third perspective on um, on this work. So I'm I sit here very eager to uh, to go back through, and it'll probably be ready in about three or four weeks. No, that's great. But, no, but, but I want to thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk. It is such a nice conversation about this. Uh, you know, yeah, because like I said, it's a book that I care about a lot. I can tell. And it's now it's wonderful to have the chance of you know explaining it a bit in this way. So oh, thank you. Also. Such a gift. Thank you for making the time, Walter. And okay. I am totally grateful. I'm. Uh, I'll just include your website. Is there any other, anything else that you think people need to know about how to reach you or reach the mm -hmm. reach your work? Because you have a great website with tons uh -huh. of information and articles yeah. and access. So I I, I urge people. Well, to I think the website is the most important thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Good. The rest, everything, everybody can find well, it. Well, with with all of my heart, thank you for the time. No, thank you very much. Love